This episode is brought to you by Actually Debates. If you spend any time on the internet, you've definitely encountered the bane of any social media butterfly. People who use this amazing technology just to be wrong in public. Undoubtedly, you've employed every tried and true standard form of argumentation to purge those bad takes without success. You've tried Aristotelian, you've tried Toolman and Rogerian, you've tried Snark, Derision, Shaming, and Gaslighting, but still those erroneous viewpoints keep coming back. For the really tough logical disputes, you can't rely on your parents' brand of refutation. You need the universal squabble solution to make those pesky boneheads of contention instantly change their tune. Semantics. Nothing makes a beclouder of the popular will hang his head in shame, like pointing out what Webster's Dictionary stipulates regarding the meaning of epistemology, or democracy, or obscenity, or harassment, or trespassing, or restraining order. Actually, Debates gives you the tools you need to shut down fallacious propaganda 8 to 16 hours a day, and to leave an impression when you represent yourself in court. And use the promo code RERED, one word, to receive a complimentary lockpicking kit the standard equipment of serious dialectic disputaires. And thank you, Actually Debates, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello, hello, hello. How are you, sir? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> we're still deep in the play. It's a and... downtime for James. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I just, just slogging forward and it's, it's not just me, though, right? There's a lot of frustration at our pace making it through this play. I think that's probably true. Uh, well, what can I say? You know, we're moving as fast as we know how. Um, Nudis says he's preparing a niche sub podcast where he'll <laughs> discuss uh, episodes about the play in the same way that we do. He says, okay, we've made it past the five minute mark on the first episode of the play. <laughs> <laughs> the commentary upon the commentary upon the commentary. Yeah. Yeah. But honestly, I mean, we're, we're moving into more plot driven parts of the play, I think, yep. and things are going to move faster. We'll get out of this thing, I think, in two more episodes. Yes. And we we kind of as we finished up this one, we made a pact for ourselves to try and cap it at five. So yeah. I even I think I even posted something about that just because, yeah, they're getting long. And even after we recorded the fourth one, um, the one you're listening to, going to listen to now, part of me was kind of like, oh, we're still moving slow. But I think the last like part five is still a long scene, but it's all pretty much one scene. And yeah. there's a little less of the sort of big scale allegorical things going on. It feels a little bit more like it's kind of commenting on stuff. Exactly. It's just, feel, it feels more like, well, I mean, I think it feels more like a, like an event in, in some way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think this is, yeah, we're, we're moving. Okay. It, yeah. No, don't lose faith people. No, It's all right. We, we will do that. And we're even just behind the scenes. We're even working on the next real chapter too. So 
there's there yeah. hope. There yeah. Oh, hope. speaking of things behind the scene, um, should we go ahead and, and publicize that we have sure. a tentative date? Yes, sure. So our been, official I, uh, Worldcon uh, panel? The official panel. Um, I have been explicitly told by Worldcon not to say what the tentative schedule is. So here's what the tentative schedule is. Um, <laughs> our official panel for Worldcon is going to be held Sunday morning at 10 a.m., which that's the time they've given us for right now. That could all right. change so in all a week. Subject, that's why they don't want us to tell you, but... But that's good news because then what that means is that James and I can start to set up a schedule for Friday, Saturday, which is when I think we're going to try and hold all of our official shadow of the con things is Friday afternoon, evening and Saturday primarily. And then if anyone's still around on Sunday, awesome. We'll hang out. We'll figure out what we can do. Or if you're around earlier on Friday, we'll definitely get together. We haven't decided quite specifics yet but that does remind me also a couple things remember if you do want to try and write a story for our little short story contest of sorts about Agia's backstory right we've gotten a couple entries but it would be nice to have more yeah definitely even if you are not a writer that doesn't matter just go nuts remember at this point um you know you have a very good chance of getting some walking away with some kind of a prize so indeed you should not miss the opportunity. Yep. Don't don't say, well, gosh, I don't know. What's the point? I'll never, I can't write anything good enough. You probably can write something good enough to win yes. something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, this is all for fun. So we're right. not going to sit there and be like, ah, oh, you didn't spend two years getting an MFA, obviously, because you didn't do this <laughs> one. No, none of that. Right. Um, but no, so we're going to try and see if we could get um, Ada Palmer or Joan Gordon or... Michael Swanwick, who right now are tentatively going to be on that main panel. Maybe we can get them to come by for something during the day. We'll see. Because obviously Worldcon is a huge, huge, big thing with lots and lots of stuff going on. But we'll also try to set up um, a a keynote of sorts for Mark. I don't know exactly what we're going to do. Remember that Frug set us up to do a little book club of sorts. So start mm-hmm. reading seven American nights, right? Either first time or again, if you ready to deliver. Yeah. Yep. And if you can't make it out there, don't worry. We're going to try and record as much as we can uh, make it available. I don't know how we'll be on streaming stuff. I don't know that that's, I don't know if we really got all the technology to do that, but, but who knows? Well, no, but, but we are going to try and record things as well as possible. Yeah. So if you can't make it to Chicago, on September 1st through the 5th, then we will do our best to still record if you want to see what was said. I'm going to try and find a, a location for us to do this so that everyone will feel like it's okay to just kind of do a walk-in and yeah. you don't feel like you're invading somebody's hotel uh, yeah, room hotel room, or James's private, underwear sitting on or, the or, Yeah, their, their personal orgy going on. Yeah. So. <laughs> But we'll do that. Now, I'm going to try, and by the way, just if you're listening, I'm going to try and get a head count just so we know who is officially planning on coming just to prep a little more um, right. and be sure. So if you see that on Facebook or if you're if you are someone who is not anywhere out on the Internet and you plan to come, maybe send us an email rereadingwolf at gmail.com just so if you plan to come just and you hear this beforehand, just so we know that you're ready. Definitely. Yeah. Well, OK, let's get started on these All comments right. here. Yeah. Uh, let's see on, uh, Reddit goon hands reminds us that he's already written an extensive write up on the identity of Catherine Karina and Contessa put a link to that in the show notes. I, 
basically Karina in the play is Catherine, Severian's mother, and the daughter of Valeria and Duke's, uh, how do you pronounce his, Cassidius? Uh, Cassidius, I think. Yeah, Duke's Cassidius. And then the maid in the ceremony is Karina's Kybit. And she's also the woman from the Path of Air, which suggests that Wolf is misdirecting us here in the play. And uh, so Gunan seems to be presuming that Severian's mother is the daughter of an armager. I don't know. There are a lot of things about this theory that, that bother me personally. But one thing about it that I think is cool is that he says that just as Severian seems to have the power of the new son to resurrect Triskily, he also has the unwitting power to time travel. And he does in the first chapter of the book to encounter Bodilus, Hildegrin, and Thea digging up Thecla's body. And that actually is a uh, machinery that I think could theoretically work. Mm-hmm. And we talk about the places where it does seem that he absolutely does seem to time travel just by walking. Right. That could exactly. be going on in the catacombs, could be on that that path of crushed white stones or bones that he follows mm-hmm. in the graveyard in the first, uh, first chapter happens in a few different places where yeah. it's possible. So, yeah, as far as the other relationships, um, I'm not entirely settled on still all the relationships, but I do think that the, the, but yeah, the time travel part makes sense to me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and also on uh, Reddit, Mike Farrar suggests that maybe it was the Harad Jewels who, along with helping Baldanders with his technology, that they, quote, greatly shaped Telus's personality, aided in his construction, and provided him with the lost Book of the New Sun. Additionally, he says that, quote, given the play is adapted by Talos and Kanag's book was based on Severian's retelling of Talos's play, I think looking for Agia, Hathor, or even Jonas, and it will be a fruitless search. He, well, I mean, Severian had met all those people, maybe. He adds, uh, quote, Earth of the New Sun adds Valeria, uh, Jader, Sis as Prophet, Jaterna, and some soldiers to the mix of characters. You guys made note of Jahi being naked and spangled with jewels earlier, and I'll note that it's Valeria crowned and spangled with jewels later in Earth of the New Sun, and that Baldi rises up from his role as fawning servant brute in the play to steal the prophet's best lines in the coming White Fountain and its destructive nature at the deluge. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm tilting at windmills here, but I think you and Mark are looking for the answer to this play primarily in the chronolo- chronological future of Earth. And I think that's an error, And but I'll develop that more as we go. Well, you do have a bit of a semi-ally <laughs> there. So, because if, yeah. you know, if you're, Come if, on. if Ferrar is thinking it's more about the back, then yeah, that's, that's different. But um, yeah. I'm still convinced it's more about the future. What's itself. coming up? Yeah. Let's see. Also on Reddit, uh, Turambar29 is following us, at least to chapter 18 of Claw so far, and he's enjoying the speculation on Jonas's past. And I've developed a very specific understanding of his past and future with a kind of an empty space in the middle. I suppose that's no surprise. Um, I mentioned it in pieces, but I'll string it all together in our summary of Claw when we talk about Jonas. But Turambar says... I see some some thematic resonance in Jonas with other characters in Wolf novels. What it reminds me of most, though, is Manny and the Elf from 
the wizard knight. I see a thematic resonance in Wolf of seeing lesser creatures like Jonas and Sidero, who are considered machines by Severian, elevated by human beings with something spiritual. Hieros seem to assert that this is how they were made, and now they wish to elevate humans in turn. So we know Jonas is seeking the Herodules. Uh, it occurs to me now, Craig, that Jonas could have just stuck around with Severian a few hours longer, and then he would have met the Herodules at the play. But, you know, those Herodules would not have been returning to the big ship. They were headed to the past. So I mm-hmm. guess that's, you know, not a great benefit. A Turin bar was inspired by our conversation about Jonas actually being neither robot nor bio, but a third as a merger of the two, which is why he becomes unhinged when his temporary union is disrupted. He wants from the mirrors, Turambar says, and from the high rows, he wants the high rows to perform a kind of permanent merger of his separate parts. Hmm. Yeah. I think it all fits thematically. I like it. I'm thinking, yeah, it certainly fits thematically. I'm trying to think. Yeah, it's it's still just hard for me to really get a strong sense of the high rows sort of mechanical purpose mm. like just in the plot i mean i know baldander said they gave him they fed him information and things like that before but for others i'm not really sure how they would do things like that like i'm still to be quite honest apart from the section in earth of the new sun where they basically save severian from the tomb right i don't know what else they do precisely for him um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they talk to him a lot, but I don't know. I know I, that's, I, maybe that's a question for later when we see more about them later, but right. Yeah. You know, you know that's kind of interesting though. Yeah. They always say, you know, the first time you see us, it's going to be the, the last time, the yeah. last time mm-hmm. we'll see you. And the, the fir- last time you see us, the first time for mm-hmm. us, but actually it's the last time for both of them. Right. Cause they're going moving backwards in the past and Severian has moved way f- far in the past. Yeah. Kind of a little surprise and a twist for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, oh. By the way, thanks everybody for taking part in the Ask Me Anything. It's, nothing could be more frightening for us than to have an Ask Me Anything and nobody attends. So. No, especially. And it's nice that now you look at that and it has like I think if I look at it right now, 180 something <laughs> replies. Yeah. Even if even if they're all us replying at least, <laughs> it just doesn't look dead. That's nice. Right. Yeah. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, really. Thanks. Uh, did you have a favorite uh, question from? Yeah, I think I do. It was the one that was, "What would I think, and would I read it if Wolf had left a book that just explained everything?" Yeah. Oh, um, I definitely read that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh yeah, of course. I, yeah, I would um, like that. But it was a definitely a kind of cool thought experiment. But it was by Agnes Varda. Mm-hmm. They just asked if Wolf had left a book clarifying every illusion, symbol, and secret in his writing, blowing the lid off the whole thing, would that be a good thing? And would you read it? And my reaction was kind of two things. On the one hand, I feel like, of course, I would read it. Um, but also, I part of the reason I don't, wouldn't mind reading it is I don't read Wolf as just interesting when the puzzles are still mysteries like i don't really think of them even the parts that are puzzle like i don't think of them as just puzzles because i still am really attracted just on the surface level of how much wolf intends to stick with a single person's point of view Mm -hmm. and the point of the stories is to me even when you know the whole backstory like a book of the new sun 
there's still a whole lot of drama in Severian's learning about these things and how he reacts to not knowing and how he reacts to the possibilities that he starts to put together. Same kind of thing with Abel. Like Abel doesn't know everything that's going on in Wizard Knight. And even if we start to feel like we answer questions, there's still a really cool drama of Abel's reaction Abel's relation and not knowing and what goes on. And it's that sort of way that the characters deal with Mm -hmm. being in uncertainty. That's the real sort of like cool thing about Wolf to me. Like there's so many people who could write mysterious stories that once you solve the puzzle, then they're no fun to read anymore. But (laughs) like book of the new sun is still fascinating to me, even though I think I have a reasonably good sense of at least a couple of the possibilities of what the whole backstory is. I'm still fascinated by how do these characters deal with that? How does it relate to them in the middle of being in the story? Like he was one thing that was so cool about Wolf was he was able to write these stories that last to me and are still really moving, dramatic and interesting, even when you do quote unquote solve them, that they're not right. just fun as surreal, weird fiction, which I think they are, um, but they last even when you've sort of seen things from the other side. So that was my my main answer to that. And first of all, Dude, yeah, of course, I would totally read that and check myself and see like how how right I was. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, the first time I read any wolf story is my least favorite. In fact, it's sometimes it's, it's just very hard. All I'm trying to do is get through it so I can read it for real and and understand what's going on. And so, you know, the, you know, the, the, that there, there, it's it's kind of a mind thing. You have to pay attention and you try to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it, sometimes it takes more than one person to figure out what's going on. But the real joy for me is when I feel like I understand what's going on because it never disappoints. I always can see all the little structure going on inside the play, inside the uh, the story mm-hmm. and the narrative and the little hints that Wolf has put in ahead. You know. Yeah. Early on. And that's very satisfying in in any story, if you can see that going on. And oh, yeah. that, some, some of my favorite uh, wolf stories are ones where there is really very little doubt about what is going on mm-hmm. in the, at the plot level at all. Yeah. 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 And it's still part of that thing that I think, that, well, yeah. And the other thing I would really like too is if we did see the solutions and sort of how he thought or what Wolf thought a quote unquote solution to one of his stories or novels would be, we'd learn a whole lot more about what he thought counted as an interesting mystery and what he thought counted as a meaningful puzzle rather than just something that he made hard to figure out. Right. Like that tells you a lot because I mean, people still argue over what are the puzzles, right? We, yeah, you and I have differences so. over, well, what's actually a mystery here or what's actually something to be figured out. That's as much of a debate. I yeah, think is anything exactly. else. And so if we could learn more about what Wolf thought, I don't, I mean, I still come from the way of reading stuff that I feel like once the book is out there, it, does belong as much to the readers as to the author. The effects that books have are often not exactly what the authors hoped they would, but they're still meaningful and loved for that effect, even if it's, yeah, totally different from the author. Having both is awesome because then you can you can see both what he intended, but then maybe how something else was going on at the same time that maybe he didn't consciously intend or or 
as a craftsman in 10, but it came out because of that's his style or that's his personality or something like that. And you could just clarify all those different things even more if we had a book like that. So yeah, totally. I would read. <laughs> yeah. I could pick one uh, of these questions, but um, and, and there's a lot I really like, but I'm going to pick something that I can handle really short because I know this is going to be a long episode. Uh, Gfoil333 uh, says, I believe James is based in Austin, Texas, and I'm in San Antonio. Any chance <laughs> for a Texas-based WolfCon? I would say, Greg, there's a very good chance for oh, that. Yeah. yeah. And also, you know, I'm, I'm kind of split between uh, Austin and North Dallas right now, but I have a yard in both those locations. And so, yeah, we should definitely have a, like a little wolf get together sometime when, have, you know, sit in my, get, go to my backyard, hang out and uh, eat some barbecue. That'd be cool. No, in fact, our first thoughts about doing a little wolf con were going to be in Texas. But then when we saw that Worldcon was in Chicago, it seemed like, well, that's a good draw for people. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, give people that. a but, reason. Yeah. yeah. But if we have a second shadow, a sequel to the shadow of the con, the, the con of the conciliator or something, then um, that I think we'd probably look for Texas. Yeah. Is okay, that what we well, have to call it now? Con of the conciliator? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the conciliation the con. next one <laughs> con yeah. of the conciliation yeah. yeah that's right and then con of the lictor yep. and uh, <laughs> so there were a ton of other great questions on yeah. the ama but we already have a really long episode here coming up so we're we'll, we'll pull up a few of them for the next episode especially if there's not that many comments <laughs> so <laughs> we, we can pad some space with that um, but thank you again to everybody who did that uh, and participated and throughout ideas and if you didn't know that was going on go take a look because there's a lot of good stuff that came out about yeah overall yeah, it's really good ideas wolf but also some specific stuff and james even got to go fifth at cerberus stuff yeah i always like that so you keep the cooks and charlatans and business babe but do appreciate your And we have two new master patrons this week, so we'd like to give them a special shout-out right now. First, welcome to Mo Chismo. And David McKay. Okay, okay. As always, thanks to not just the new ones, but to all of our patrons for helping out and supporting us. And as we get closer and closer to the shadow of the con in September, we have to say thank you even more to all of our patrons, because without them, we couldn't be doing this. And again, if you are interested in Shadow of the Con, check out shycon.org or look us up on any social media where you can find information about what we're doing. But that's coming up very soon, September 1st through 5th, and we're going to have the exact program for our material out here shortly. And hopefully, maybe some things will be live streamed. At the very least, we'll have some recordings. But for now, let's keep making headway in the play. <laughs> So we're up to part four and we are, shoot, we're not halfway yet. <laughs> so I think we'll speed up. I do, I do feel like once we get to certain points, we're going to speed up. I, I, I have, look, we're going to do, cause we're not coming back. I'm telling you, we will never go back. I will, <laughs> I will never speak of this afterwards <laughs> and we are, so let's, Let's dig hard. <laughs> All right. Well, here we go. Let's have our stage direction. It says, the stage darkens. When the light returns, Meshian and Jahi are lying together beneath a rowan tree. There is a door in the hillside behind them. Jahi's lip is split and puffed, giving her a pouting look. 
Blood trickles from it to her chin. So these two fighting here, you know, they've, 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 uh, it's kind of off screen a little bit, mm-hmm. but they've been in a fight. And, you know, when I read this, I'm like, okay, are there actually two women fighting in the story or not? You know, could it be a metaphorical struggle between feminine principles like Juturna and Afeta, Aegea and Dorcas, Dorcas and Jalenta? And I mean, for this, where it is, Dorcas and Jalenta are clearly the ones who are kind of vying for something where this is in the arc, but I think it might be something bigger than that yeah and it's the door in the hillside that stands out to me more is like what exactly are we talking about here and there that the first thing that makes me think is the um chameleon's cave just Mm -hmm. because it is something there which also then and this is just the pure sort of speculation part but then i wonder about the witches and is there something about the witches and and the cruelty of the female torturers that gets talked about later on but i don't know so well i'm gonna refer you later on to one kind of door in the hill it actually occurs on the site where they do this when severian first comes back to earth in earth of the new sun he sees his own memorial there Mm -hmm. and it's kind of right on this location and um, so we'll, I think we'll come back to that, though. Yeah, there's. Um, it's interesting that you guys are all going for literal explanations for what's going on because when <laughs> I've I always, this, I've always, yeah. When I see this, I see that we have a rowan tree, which is a fairy tree, and there's a door in the hillside, which is a which is fairy, fairy reference. Door. Yeah, but yeah. but do you know what one of the big things that the rowan tree did? It's saved um, Thor when he's being swept away in a river like a flood mm-hmm. in the underworld. And so he managed to grab onto it. So like it's associated with a flood and salvation too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, very much so. You know, people, yeah. people used to make little crosses out of rowan trees and hang them from the necks of their cattle to keep away the witches. Um, supposedly, uh, Welsh tradition was that the rowan tree was the tree used to carve Jesus's cross, actually. And it was called by a word meaning the lamenting fruit. And I see there's a vague connection between this tree and the tree of life. Uh, the Greek goddess, Hebe, Roman Juventus, both their names mean youth. And Juventus's name is associated with you know, the word rejuvenate and juvenile. And actually, uh, Hebe's name means youth as well. And she was the cupbearer of the gods, and she was the youngest of the Olympians, and she was responsible for serving ambrosia to the other gods and restoring their youth. She's the goddess of eternal youth, the only god with that power. And she was associated with eagles. Her father, Zeus, was often in the form of an eagle. And eagles, like the phoenix, were believed to have the ability to restore their own youth. Uh, anyway, uh, there's a story where Hebe lost her cup and an eagle went through a, a lot of deadly trouble to get it back. And everywhere the eagle's blood dropped grew a rowan tree. So the rowan is associated with eternal life. Very cool. Now, uh, that's really neat, but I'm going to bring an aside here from a different novel, Wolf's last novel, uh, Interlibrary Loan. You know, we learned that Urn's name actually means eagle in that. And there's a lot of imagery about like that the, the cup or the liquid that brings eternal life in that. And so it's it's really it's really an interesting metaphorical association there. Oh, that, that and, actually that that's pretty good because that works. Yeah, as a it works in that one too. person, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And he's trying to get like that, that youth back because the older version of himself does things to itself. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in that. Right. So um, in the last ap- episode, Act One ended 
And during Act One, Meshian and Jahi ran off in a big fight. And, and Jahi was attacking Meshian, and Meshian was fleeing. And now we have here, starting in Act Two, Meshian and Jahi seem to have patched up their differences after a, some kind of physical struggle, which supposedly Meshian won because uh, we have Jahi with her, uh, you know, blood trickling from her mouth with a fat lip. And, uh, but, you know, as far as we're told, this never happened in Severian's story. Uh, but um, the idea of the blood trickling from Jahi's mouth it kind of initially would suggest a vampiric Lilith character, as you mentioned uh, Lilith before, Mark. And uh, Lilith does have, as we uh, mentioned in the chapter 34, does have certain vampiric associations and certainly belongs in any creation story. But in this case, the blood from her mouth is her own because Meshian hit her. Now, real quickly, there is a scene in Book of the New Sun where there's like uh, almost a vampiric dribbling of something. I think it's from Severian's lip in that chapter um, called The Morning in Shadow of the Torturer, where, he, you know, they wake up and then the pomegranate or whatever is there and yeah, Dorcas that's comments the, that's on the it. the Garden of Eden. Uh, yes, Garden of Eden yes exactly. You write that tempting fruit there. But what is the tempting fruit here? Right. I mean, we know the Rowan tree is protective. Um, we know that it protects against witchcraft and enchantment. But like, is is what's being invoked in this really. And and I do think there's a weird gender swapping in so many of these scenes when you see them reflected. Like, you know, the, the prophet is a prophetess. And then here the female had the, the dripping lip, but Severian was the one with it earlier. So I think it's hmm. just an interesting thing that's going on with that in this play. Yeah, because he yeah, he looked like he looked like a vampire bat mm-hmm. with his yeah. With his a, and yeah. even the autark at the in earth is going to be the autarka. You know, it's going to be Valeria, more or less. Uh, so it's it's really interesting how Wolf decided to invert some things across that gender line and representation. So um, we can read the dialogue with Meshian. Uh, who, who's Meshian here? I'll be Jahi. I was Meshia. Okay, okay. Meshian says, uh, how strong I would be to still search for him if only I knew you would not follow me. And Jahi responds, I move with the strength of the world below and will follow you to the second ending of earth if need be. But if you strike me again, you will suffer for it. Meshian lifts her fist and Jahi cowers back. So we're not told who she's searching for. Presumably it's uh, Meshia, Severian. But, you know, it's not stated. In this scene, it does feel like Dorcas's and Agia's relationship. In fact, it's difficult not to imagine Jahi as being played by Agia for me, but I still want to point out some differences in it. This is not a scene that's anywhere in Severian's story that I know of where Dorcas is pursued by Agia rather than pursuing Severian. In fact, Jahi doesn't seem to have any interest in Meshia, the first man the Zoroastrian Adam. She's interested in pursuing Dorcas. Well, hold, let's first, I want to know like just on the basic sort of plot level, who is Meshiana talking about here when she says him? Like she didn't not, need to search not Meshia? for Meshia. Not Meshia? Well, if, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I mean that, that's what I was wondering because I mean, they sort of ran each other off and, and unless this is just like, no, to get back to, to him. Lost, they were fighting that, over him. Okay, They're like fighting over get, him to see who's going to get him. Right. And so actually this that's what, scene, that's what made sense, but it just, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And then later on after the play, 
the girls are going to run off and Severian's going to run after them, searching after them kind of like. And so there's this, once again, this weird gender inversion in the events that actually occur. Right. And Yai says that she's following her. It's just, just being really picky here because she doesn't say when she responds, I move the strength of the world below and will follow you um, yeah. instead of. Very much so, if need Almost be. Almost like yeah. instead of they're fighting over Meshia, she's fighting over Meshia, which is not just, I mean, I'm just talking about surface level of the story. That wasn't what happened before they went all messy. Okay, but is it like, could this be like a Moby Dick kind of thing where like, I'll follow you to the ends of the earth for my vengeance? Yeah, you know? it could be like, that. Like, yeah. but, but I mean, it, it isn't quite that. Well, they're not, I mean, she's not trying to wreck vengeance at this point. She's already won that fight. No. Cause she says, if you strike me again, you'll suffer. So, yeah. okay. I'm going to follow you now in, in my reading here, then I think this becomes something like, okay, Jahi is an archetype. Yahi is going to be Jaterna, right? And so we're going to see her wanting to mesh with something that's the new humanity here. And mm-hmm. so I think that this is like following in that footstep. And this is the stuff that I've been saying all along mm-hmm. here. But to make it really work with the plot, I move with the strength of the world below and will follow you to the second ending of Earth. You're not getting rid of her right? If need be. So there's no getting rid of what she, she's going to pursue what she wants and she won't make them suffer unless they strike at her again, I guess. It's, it's, it's kind of. Well, I do, you know, I do find that a little bit credible. You know, if, if Jahi herself is the, you know, the queen of the underworld. So as her archetype, that, that world below could, applies to that. But I kind of like the idea if she were to be associated with Juturna and referring to, you know, the, the, the powers of the uh, under the sea, mm-hmm. the, the world below. Yep. Um, I assume you guys are still sticking with the idea that the second ending of Earth is the coming of the new sun, and the first ending was when the sun got stricken. No, I think that the first ending of Earth is when Ushis is born, and I think this will be. I'll follow you even beyond Ushis to the real end of Ushis, like another ending. So I think it's like you're not going to get rid of me in this new creation. I'm still going to be there until the very, very bitter end, like way in the future. I'll follow you into eternity. So it's, I think that's a projection forward from the ending that we, we have one ending right now, um, and that's like I'm going to follow you even beyond this one to the next one. That's my um, reading. Another possibility for the the strength of the world below um, could be the tunnels underneath the citadel, uh, which which suggests some sort of uh, time travel reference. Just saying, not that I know what that means. I'll, I'll let you say that. I'll let you. Say that. <laughs> okay. Um, now Meshian and Jahi will sit together and have a discourse, and that feels like it's in the same dramatic genre as waiting for the Godot. I can't derive any illumination from their conversation, but I, I do think there's something um, there possibly that's worth discussing. So Meshian says, your legs were shaking worse than mine when we decided to rest here. And Jahi responds, I suffer far more than you, but the strength of the world below is to endure past endurance. Even as I am more beautiful than you, I'm a more tender creature by far. <laughs> and Meshian says, we've seen that. I think I warn you again, and there will be no third warning. Strike me at your peril. What will you do? Summon up an Arenas to destroy me? I have no fear of that. If you could, you would have done it long before. Worse, if you strike me again, you'll come to enjoy it. 
Uh, so this quote uh, from Messian is intriguing in that Severian will uh, think of it later. What will you do? Summon the, the Arenas to destroy me? The Arenas are personifications of vengeance against some grievous sin, particularly sins against those who are due some right or respect. Sins of children against their parents, sins of the young against the elderly, sins of hosts against their guests, sins of cities against aliens. Uh, they are multiple, although of undetermined number. But here in uh, Talos's play, there is only one. And according to Hesiod in uh, his Theogony, the Irenus were born from the blood that fell on the earth when Kronos castrated Uranus, his father. So the Irenus were born from a kind of patricide. However, there are others that identify their origin far more primordially in that they are the children of Nyx, of Night herself, who is a character in the tale of the student and his son, who I identify as a personification of death. And if you were paying close attention, you would know that. In other places, they are the children of Nyx by Hades or Pluto. In other words, they are chthonic beings. In fact, citing the tale of the student and the son again, they dwell in Erebus, the darkness of the underworld, who, as we pointed out before, is the consort of Nyx and the stepfather of little Princess Noctua, the love and confederate of the sun, flesh from dreams. And bringing this back to Jahi, the queen of the underworld, it would make sense if she might be able to sun, summon Aranus to destroy Messiana, but notice Messiana doesn't seem too worried that she will. But to invoke Aranus suggests some dark sin by Messiana or Dorcas or whoever the character is a figure of. Okay, so let's look at the castration very quickly because there is some castration imagery throughout New Sun. And primarily it's when, when the Autark attempts, you know, to actually bring the New Sun, he's going to be unmanned more or less. Um, so what is at stake? What does the Autark want? He wants a continuation of humanity. But here at the end, if you strike me, you'll come to enjoy it. If we become as evil as our foes and kind of do the thing that they want us to do sometimes, right? Um, that can lead to corruption, the corruption of humanity. And if you destroy your foes, sometimes you become worse than your foes. And so I think that that's kind of the moral thrust there is like, she's not going to destroy necessarily uh, Meshian, but the actions that Meshian as, as kind of a, a archetype of what humanity might be that she takes can influence its development and possibly corrupt it in a way. It's also very redolent of the uh, reason Severian gives for wanting to get rid of the guild at the end. That it's yes. like it's, it's horrible that good men should have to do this. Like in the way he tells it, that's the deeper sin than causing the pain, actual, causing yes, suffering, is that it actually corrupts good people. Yes. Um, I don't know if the, if this is just too. I don't really have an answer, so maybe we ought to just save it for Citadel the Autark. But Severian is going to recall this line about Irenus when he's camping with the body of Miles, the dead soldier. And he's thinking about his memories that sort of reminds me of, you know, when he left the Manape's caves and was associating, you know, the clanging thing, the walking tower in the cavern, and also associating it, have something to do with, with memory. But in this, it just feels like such a free association and he fears he might lose himself in his memories forever. He thinks of uh, Iada when he ducked into the necropolis the night that uh, Severian met Vodalus. He thinks of a lightning storm 
He once watched at the Citadel. He thinks then of Dorcas, her own memories of her life before she died, and mixes them with the line, sitting here in a window, trays and a rude, what will you do? Summon up Irenus to destroy me? So, I mean, I don't, I, I have a lot written here. But I don't know really what to, where to go with it. Maybe we should just save it. It No, it's kind of interesting then that Dorcas is the one who's given this line more or less, right? Associated with the memories of, of her life. Um, has Dorcas done anything sinful or vile or something that requires vengeance uh, besides just, you know, bringing Severian to the world eventually, right? Like like through yeah. her lineage. It seems hard to imagine that she'd ever done anything wrong, even though she does refer to herself as being something wretched. Um, so next, Jahi threatens Messiana with a curse if Messiana strikes her again. And the curse, she says, is that she will learn to enjoy it. Uh, this line, spoken by Jalinta, recalls the previous chapter, where Severian says that Jalinta came near to making a sadist of him, someone who gets sexual pleasure from causing pain to others. Uh, it's similar, but once again, it, it holds nothing firm for me beyond that. I think it's just thematic, you know, the corruption from temptation that Jahi symbolizes overall. Right. All right. We have now two new characters. Enter first soldier and second soldier armed with pikes. Ah, yeah. So these are naturally the Piquineries, the pikemen that the Autark said that he was going to send to look for Michiana and Jahi. So in this scene, we get two brand new characters, first soldier and second soldier, played by, I guess, Severian and Talos. But we're not given any obvious clues, which is which at, the, at first. I think the second soldier is being played by Severian. It just feels right. And they are called soldiers, though uh, not not Pequeneries. It Otherwise, I think only Miles is ever simply called a soldier in this book. I'd like to make something of these characters, but uh, frankly, nope. I, I've never made much of it, but I always felt a thematic pairing between Severian and Agilus. And remember that when Agilus was being brought to the scaffolding, Severian had a kind of vision of him as a soldier, and Severian feels some regret at executing a guy who he has, until then, only had contempt for as his would-be murderer. Um, one of his key formative moments is that talk about the coin, and he uses that example of how a soldier becomes a soldier, you know, and so I think that every time a soldier appears, you know, there's something about that duty, something that leads to where the acceptance of what you say you're going to do basically forms you, right? Like the symbol of the coin forms him in some way. Mm. Uh, so I think that, you know, it's not beyond the pale to look at some of that as well here. Also, uh, these Pequeneries coming up to arrest Messiana and Jahi uh, is kind of similar to Severian and Jonas being arrested on House Absolute Grounds. Obviously, the Autarch would have wanted them brought to him, but he didn't want them treated rough or arrested. And who does uh, Severian get to die in his stead? Like, like lures him over and the Nachus kill that guy. What uh, Was he a soldier? What was he called? Uh, the, Ulan. the Ulan. He's an Ulan. Yeah. That's right. He's an yeah. Ulan. Yeah. Okay. All right, so the first soldier, I guess I'll be first soldier. This first soldier, look here. And then later we're going to discover that the name of the first, this first soldier is Ivo. Uh, saint Ivo was a 13th century priest. He's the patron saint of Brittany, abandoned children, and 
lawyers. So the patron saint of bastards and lawyers, which is by some accounts redundant. So why might bastards be important here? Well, <laughs> well, it depends on who this, what the, what the soldier is. I mean, it's, it's being played. I think Ivo is being played by, by Talos. Well, beyond, beyond the, the soldier aspect. I mean, like this, this idea of bastardization, right? Like you have a child that is not necessarily acknowledged by its parent. It's yeah. something like out there. And I think that that is something at stake too. What's the rightful lineage of humanity, right? What's the bastard child of humanity? Uh, and, and in short son, I mean, I think we'll, um, we'll come to, a, a more uh, like more Lockean view of some of the species there, where I will anyway. So, the second soldier then says to Meshian and Yahi, Jahi, and I need to just pick a way to pronounce Jahi instead of doing it. Well, it could be ja, 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 Jahi. Ja, I like Jahi. Just yeah. I'll just I'll just stick with that. So, uh, then the second soldier says, "Down, down! Don't stand or like a heron, I'll skewer you. You're coming with us." Herons uh, skewer fish, right? And Meshian. And Meshian says, on our hands and knees? <laughs> and the first soldier replies, none of your insolence. A second soldier has told them to follow them, but he's told them not to stand. And this, of course, is a funny scene. Uh, remember, they haven't done anything wrong and they aren't being arrested, but the soldiers are treating them like potentially dangerous criminals. And these, these guys are, you know, somewhat comic relief characters. Yeah, we are starting to get more into the sort of far side of things. Like we got, we had the autark there and the sort of play, but these guys add a different kind of slapstick, I guess. Yeah. What's going yeah. on? Yeah. So the first soldier prods Meshian with his pike, and as he does, there's a groaning almost too deep for hearing. The stage vibrates in sympathy with it, and the ground shakes. Oh wow! So the second soldier says, "What was that?" And first, I don't know. And Jahi says, the end of Earth, you fool. Go ahead and spear her. It's the end of you anyway. That's, you know, this is really interesting because Jahi was, has been talking about how she moves with the power under the world. Mm -hmm. and But it's, it's when they are prodding Meshian that the Earth starts groaning. Um, does the groaning Earth and the first soldier prodding Meshian with his spear and Jahi suggesting that he run her through, does this mean that we're supposed to associate Meshian with Earth itself? Well, what is going to make the Earth groan there? It's the coming of the new sun. So I would say, right, that the coming of the new sun and the new races that are rising up from that, she is the future, right? So it's it's interesting that a threat to her threatens the Earth. But I think in a way it makes sense because if you kill the mother of everyone that's going to come after right? Then you're threatening the destruction of the world as well. So I think it makes a kind of thematic sense, but logically it doesn't because she's more associated with Ushis than Earth. But it's more like, okay, you end her, you end everything for real. And the new yeah. sun is coming. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to throw out some references because I don't know where this is going. So maybe something else stick. Um, when Gaia the Earth, uh, Cronus's mother, complained to him that Uranus was keeping her youngest children from being born, the hundred-handed Hectonchiris. I never had to say that out loud. He's forcing them to be kept beneath the Earth in Tartarus, and Gaia is described as groaning in pain. And then alternately, in Romans 8, 19-23, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. 
the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, so, But if you're waiting for me to tie all this together, I, I forget about it. I can't. Not in the way I like to tie <laughs> things together. But I do like that the imagery of Jahi and Meshian here gets crossed, right? Because Jahi, who said, you know, I'm the power of the world below. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it actually comes about that Meshian is getting threatened, then you actually hear it. So it's not just a threat anymore. But I, now I don't particularly know what to make of that kind of ambiguity. Like, because it seems like even Jahi mentions that, yeah, that's the groaning of earth, you fool. And if that's tied into the idea that Meshian is, is now giving birth to the new race and the new sun is coming, then maybe this is pushing the logic too much, but it's almost like the logic is messed up where, you know, Jahi's like, no, we're still fighting over it. But Meshian is saying it's already, it's already yeah. happening and the earth is giving birth now. I don't, I don't know. But I, again, I also feel like kind of worrying about the logic of that sort of order and priority may not quite be right there. Unless in some way, Jahi and Meshian are not representative of distinct people here, but of the same, of two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. I, which I, once again, can't identify the coin, can't identify the signs, <laughs> but it, it, it makes sense in a kind of a weird way if that were true. So um, when when Jahi here says that this is going to be the end of you anyway, we get kind of a, a, a com- comedic response from the second soldier, right? He says, little you know, it's the beginning for us. When the order came to search the garden, special mention was made of you two and orders given to bring you back. Ten chrysos you'll be worth or I'm a cobbler. So basically, he's not worried about the end of the earth or the coming of the new sun. He's like, I'm going to get ten coins for bringing you yeah. back. This is just the start of everything great in my life. Yeah, right? let's get my money. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a very Shakespearean kind of thing. Yeah. Somebody says something deep and the comedic fool just takes it in a, in a uh-huh. really simple way. So then it says, he seizes Jahi, and as soon as he does so, Meshian darts off into the darkness, and the first soldier runs after her. Uh, this is a scene that's reminiscent a little of the scene where Iata rushed into the necropolis with uh, Severian, Drott, and Roche waiting outside. I guess uh, Jahi bites him, although the stage directions don't say so. And in the very like next chapter, Severian's going to run after Dorcas to try and catch her. So it kind of like, it repeats a little bit and a little bit. So the second soldier yells, yeah, bite me, will you? And then the second soldier strikes Jahi with a shaft of his weapon, and they struggle. And Jahi says, fool, she's escaping. That is, uh, Messiana is getting away. Yeah. And the second soldier says, that's Evo's worry. I've got my prisoner, and he let his escape if he doesn't catch her. Come on, we're going to see the Kiliark. Uh, Jahi attempts to seduce him in a manner that's reminiscent of maybe Agia or perhaps Jolenta herself or Jaterna. Will you not love me before we leave this winsome spot? And have my manhood cut off and shoved into my mouth? Not I. They'd have to find it first. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Jahi's wit is as sharp as her teeth. But there's castration coming back, too. Yeah. 
So second soldier then says, what's that? And he shakes her. You take the office of Earth, who will not trouble herself for me. She's referring to the shaking of, of Earth. Uh, the soldier is shaking her, but Earth isn't shaking. It was groaning when they prodded uh, Messiana, but it's not going to re- react the same way for Jai. Am I reading this right? I, I think so. And yeah. also that Earth doesn't care about their particular fate, right? Jahi, right. second soldier, doesn't not quite as important to Earth. But And Jahi says here, but wait, release me only for a moment and I'll show you wonderful things. Well, if you, you know, you think that she's still trying to buy him off with sex, but we're going to see that that's not it at all. And the second soldier says, I can see them now, for which I give all thanks to the moon. <laughs> Jai says that she's going to show him wonderful things, but the soldier says he can already see her bear tatas and finds them wonderful. And <laughs> Talos' play is essentially a burlesque. And Jahi says, I can make you rich. Ten crisis will be as nothing to you, but I have no power while you grasp my body. So Jahi claims that she has some kind of magical power to make him rich, but she can't do it while he holds on to her. So the so the second soldier tries to determine whether she'll be able to escape if he lets her go. And he says, your legs are longer than the other woman's, but I've seen that you don't move so readily on them. Indeed, I think that you can scarcely stand. No more can I. So there we've got legs that don't work, which is very fifth head. Right. I mean, well, okay. You know? It's Chaturna, it's though. She she can't right. walk oh, on yeah. men. No, I know. I know. That's yeah. that's well. The it's also it's also yeah. Jalenta, right? She can't walk either, and that's obviously yeah. a reference to the actress herself. But yeah, but it's it's bigger than that, though. It's bigger. It is an interesting trend that Wolf always has these sort of fake characters not have solid legs. Like that seems like really cool dream logic to me. Yeah. Something very himself the, is very in the lane, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. But second soldier then says, I'll hold your necklace. The chain looks stout enough. If that's sufficient, show me what you can do. If it's not, come with me. You'll be no freer while I have you. Uh, So the second soldier is just going to hold her by her jewelry. Her jewelry has become her chains. And if jewelry suggests a glamour, either Jolenta's glamour, the glamour of some character she parallels, then this is a little moral. But of course, I want more than that. But now Jahi performs the magic trick that she promised, right? Yep. So Jahi raises both hands with the little fingers, index fingers and thumbs extended. For a moment, there is silence. Then a strange, soft music filled with trillings. Snow falls in gentle flakes. She makes it snow. And the second soldier is underwhelmed. Yeah, stop that. <laughs> just, just weird. And second soldier seizes one arm and jerks it down. The music stops abruptly. A few last snowflakes settle on his head. He says, that wasn't gold. (laughs) Yet you saw. There's an old woman in my home village you can work the weather to. She's not as quick as you, I admit, but then she's a lot older and feeble. Whoever she may be, she's not a thousandth part as old as I. Uh, So Jahi here claims that to be very old, which uh, I'm sorry if I'm going to troll about for an Earth candidate. There will be a conversation that Severian will have with a Syriaca in the volume where she'll alert Severian that she's older than he might expect, old enough to be his mother. And the Kamean can, you know, very much appear to be an old woman when she is very much more. And she's the head of the witches or a commander of the witches. Couldn't it be possible that a being like that could also appear to be a younger woman? I mean, either Marin, who's also a witch, or Agia, who is by illusion associated with the Kamean civil. In the Eonid. Remember the admonishments Severian receives from the Hieros that someone who wears one mask might wear another. But 
That's all I got. So I would, you know, repeat that she's Jaterna again, but there's magic here. So you know what? Why not the command? Sure. Yeah, she's old. She, she has that magical ability. She's associated with witchcraft. Uh, I don't think that, you know, Jahi needs to be limited to only Jaterna, even though in the most literal sense, her goals, the ones that she espouses here, are the ones that Chaterna has been following in the, in the main plot. Yeah. We continue. Ender Baldanders is the statue moving slowly and as though blind. Jahi's surprised. She's like, what is that thing? Second soldier, one of Father Anire's little pets. It can't hear you or make a sound. I'm not even sure it's alive. Why, neither am I for all of that. Hmm, so much there. Here is possibly a reveal, however, that the statues in the house absolute uh, garden can't hear anything, right? But uh, this one has taken a liking to Jahi. And also what Jahi responds is kind of ambiguous where she's like, uh, she's saying, I'm not sure it's alive either. Or she's saying, I'm not alive either. You know, like that really ambiguous kind of Wolfian statement at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah, very, very true. It's not clear. Maybe she's saying neither am I alive. Yeah. um, I think that's got to have been deliberate. For sure. So as the statue passes near her, she strokes its cheek with her free hand. Lover, lover, lover. Have you no greeting for me? The statue just... (laughs) 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 Just imagine Baldanders working out that line. So, (laughs) well, even though Jahi ostensibly has no power while the soldier holds her, the statue is not limited and it has a will of its own, right? Second soldier says, what's this? Stop. Woman, you said you had no power while I held you. Behold my slave. Can you fight him? Go ahead. Break your spear on that broad chest. And the statue kneels and kisses Jahi's foot. And he says, no, but I can outrun him. The second soldier throws Jahi across his shoulder and runs. The door in the hill opens. He enters and it slams shut behind him. The soldier appears to be escaping into House Absolute and... By the way, beings that leave this world by escaping into doors and hills, that, like I said, that could be a fairy reference. You do also have Jonas escaping through a door of sorts or a window. That's the, or, yeah, very true. Very well, true. this scene here, the statue's hammering, you know, he, he hammers at it with his fists there and tears are going down his face, you know, and he starts even digging with it. And so we've already talked about how these statues are an imitation of the high rows here. Uh, you know, like w- when he talks about what they, what they imitate, like, like those, those extra solarian beings mm-hmm. um, that they're kind of an imitation of. And so what's left behind? Well, humanity in the future and this soldier is just absconded with it. Uh, so it's their mourning. And then, you know, Gabriel uh, from, from off stage, you hear his voice in this and it says, thus stone images keep faith with a departed day alone in the desert when man has fled away. And I think there's, so many important images in that line there, right? Mm -hmm. A day that's departed. So the sun, right? Dying there, man has fled. Uh, It's, it's almost like instead of the new sun coming, the day is 
over. Mankind's day is done and it's run away and the statue can't catch up with it. What is what does the statue want? Well, it wants to come into reality, I think. But but Jahi's interaction with the statue is interesting because it's almost like she uh cajoles it into following her, but then she's taken away. So I, I think that this this interaction here is important. And we're going to get the statue actually appear when Severian comes back to Earth and his own memorial will be set up on this very site where they're acting out the play. And the mm-hmm. statue will approach him. So this scene is going to happen. But how did Jahi have anything to do with that statue that just kind of walks up to Severian and says, hey, this is Severian's uh, memorial here, you know, first man of Earth. Um, So, Well, I I have a a couple ideas here. Um, Is Baldander such a good actor that he can cry in command? Or has Talos mocked up some special FX device to allow him to do that? You know, (laughs) pumping water (laughs) through his eyes and coming, boom. Um, so the other thing, um, Craig, we were kind of speculating on the nature of these uh, statues. And I wonder, you know, the, the, thus the stone images keep faith with a departed day alone in the desert when a man is fled away. Perhaps, but, you know, we were thinking that maybe these statues were the, you know, the hierogrammatis, Zacchaeus people. And I wonder if they are the people that Malrubius talks about that made the hierogrammatis. There's a way to look at that that I kind of like, which is cool, which is that it's both literal and symbolic at the same time. Um, it's that it, think of it this way, in the sense that there are all these cycles, um, there's always the seed, there's always the possibility of humanity becoming something bigger. And it's not so much about, okay, which universes humanity will actually become the hieros. It's more that it's that potential that's, there in that sense sure the statue is always kind of that thing because it's always a representation of what it's going to become what humanity could become you know it's like a a memory the memory from the future (laughs) you know that's kind of how when Severian first describes him that's kind of how he talks about it like there's this perfect race that we can't really describe perfectly but these this is the closest we can come it's kind of like a memory from the future you know like potential so, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess, well, yeah, I, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking of something, perhaps it's more literal. Perhaps, perhaps these aren't, say, Zadkiel's people watching Severian from Yessa. Perhaps these are, 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 are a people that we've barely even been um, referenced in this book. Okay, so, actually. so Afeta actually says, okay. In Earth of the New Sun, Afeta rose, smoothing her white gown, her floating hair, which had seemed uncanny to me when I'd seen it first, was familiar now. Um, we have watched with the dead. Now they go, and it is time that we win also. It may be that from your ancient Earth reborn, the Hyros will come. I believe it to be so, but I'm only one woman and of no high position. I said what I did so that you would not die despairing. Uh, so Afeta actually says that she believes the Hyros will come from earth so that's humanity and this I think we is, all agree i think we agree with that but i think what the question is is that when she says high rose is she talking about her own people or is she talking no, about the people who made her no the people who made her she's a she's a larval clear. is she a larval hierogamate or a hierarch but but the high rose come from earth 
She's saying that. I believe the hieros come from Earth, the people. She outright says it. I, I no, I believe that. I, I believe that that too. In fact, I think we're that's revealed at the end of the book of the new sun. Um, I think the question about this particular quote is whether she's referring whether hieros means her own people. Or no, it, it they, doesn't. It doesn't mean her. She's not talking about herself. I don't think it's obvious about that. With the high rows, I could say, well, you know, Mark, I don't know whether humans were made on this, you know, the, the uh, sixth day of Earth's creation, or whether they evolved from primates. I can still refer to my to my own species that way. But I think she. Okay, she's attended by hierarchs. Is she a larval hierogrammate? Like, we need to get to the bottom of what a feta is. Oh, well, I have so much time to worry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I am not going to make trouble for myself at this point. This is a long way for a, for a hypothetical. Uh, look, my hypothetical still stands. I, I don't want to get distracted. We can still debate forever whether a feta is referring to her own race or to a previous race in the hieros. Doesn't matter. I'm just saying that it is very possible that this statue is not as we, I, I think it was the closest we ever came, is the, you know, the Yasadis, but the people who made the Yasadis. Either way, one thing I think is true is that the statue is intentionally something obviously artificial, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and a memorial. It's stated yeah. as a memorial. So I think that this, though, actually can signify Severian himself because he's the memorial to humanity. And it's actually his cenotaph that he shows up at there. The statue is going to approach him at his grave. So I think that that's all symbolically tied up to humanity and Severian, who's going to be the memorial. So it comes back to like the new sun there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Interesting. Like yeah. Severian is a statue. Uh, so, yeah, so it, it's Gabriel who gives this statement, and I think it's still enigmatic, to say the least. Uh, the stone images remain even when night comes, day's gone, mere humans leave, the night comes, but the stone images remain. Let's, let's move forward to the next act. I think this is um, act three, act four. Yeah, we're still in act three, I think. Yeah. Greg, why don't you start us off? So, when the lights come up again, the autarch is seated on his throne. He's alone on the stage, but silhouettes projected on screens to either side of him indicate that he's surrounded by his court. Ah, so the autarch says, Here I sit as though the lord of a hundred worlds, yet not master even of this. Uh, This is kind of interesting because the only autarch I can think of in this entire or series that could make the claim perhaps to have been Lord of a Hundred Worlds is Typhon, right? Mm-hmm. The Commonwealth, Autark is at least master of the Commonwealth. So unless this means something else. But yeah, I remember for, there was a period where I thought that the Autark was supposed to just be Typhon here and that this was happening like in the past or something. And then I talked, I talked Craig down from that in private correspondence. He's like, no, all right. Um, but you know what though? This is the thing though. He said, here I sit as though the Lord of a hundred worlds. Mm-hmm. He's not saying he is. He's saying, man, it's almost as if I had the whole universe. I'm sitting like I'm the master of the universe and I'm not even master of this place that I am actually in charge of. Mm-hmm. So like, he's not saying he is the Lord of a hundred worlds. He's just saying, it's like if I said, here I sit like a king and I don't even run my own household well. You know, like it's exactly that scenario there. I'm not in charge of the, you know, whatever nation it is, but I'm not even running what I'm supposed to. Mm-hmm. Well, so I don't think it's about Typhon. It's 
It's just he's making it could a be statement. That. Yeah, yeah, he's making yeah. a statement. Well, as though, as though. I, I admit that's true. I, this, I, in my opinion, um, which I, I'll build as we go, I, this could be Typhon. It could be Emar. But I think if I was going to, I'm going to fall on. It's Valerian. Typhon. It's Valerian. <laughs> and it happens in chapter 42. This is chapter 42, Earth of the New Sun. Um, we'll see about that. <laughs> um, Craig, what's, you, what's the next part? We, uh, the, the tramp of marching men is heard off stage and there is a shouted order. Generalissimo. And I must point out that I have no idea who this Generalissimo is. The Generalissimo is a genuine puzzle for me. The only time I know that this term was commonly used in English was for Generalissimo Francisco Franco of Spain, who did in fact die five years before Wolf finished the Book of the New Sun. Now, in Chapter 42, it's going to be the Chiliarch of the Praetorians who serves this. He's like in charge of the Praetorians there, and he's going to actually um, get uh, the Contessa as well in Earth of the New Sun. So it's following this pretty much straight out of here. You know, it's the Chiliarch. Okay, well, we'll see. (laughs) So next is Enter a Prophet. He wears a goat skin and carries a staff whose head has been rudely carved into a strange symbol. Okay, he's dressed in goat skin, and... Let's do the goat skin first. It's not a throwaway. Goat skin is the uniform of the Roman priests of the Lupercalia. I'm about to cite a lot of wolf references here. Lupercalia was a festival which took place in February and indirectly gave the month of February its name. I'll get into the etymology of that term, which is obscure, but you can, of course, hear the root word for wolf in that name, Luper. And during the festival, there was a statue of Pan set up. The Romans called him Lupercus. Uh, It was set up in front of the cave where the she-wolf nursed Romulus and Remus. And the statue was nude except for a goatskin girdle. And the cave was called the Lupercal. See the Lupercalia connection right there. And it was at the foot of Palatine Hill where Romulus was supposed to have founded Rome. And Pan was called by Justin the Lycaean god, and it's not entirely clear what he meant by calling him that, but Lycan was the founder of the Greek race, the Greek Adam, in a way, and he instituted the worship of Zeus, and he was changed by Zeus into a wolf. And of course, Pan, there's a long sun reference coming, is another form of the word pas. Okay. How about the strange symbol? Is there a symbol we should be thinking of? Could the symbol be the claw? It could be a sun. It could be the claw. It could be, yeah, it could even be a wolf for all we know, you know. But but in general, right, okay, so because the story of Romulus and Remus is going to come up in, in the tale of the boy called Frog, this isn't necessarily a huge stretch to look at all these things. I've gotten some mileage out of the Lupercalia references. I think in The Old Woman Whose Rolling Pin is the Sun, in my references there, in Between Light and Shadow. But, okay, so... When, when I first, you know, looked at some of those things that you were talking about, I'm like, man, do we always have to go so far into the weeds? Yes, 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 Mark. We must go into the weeds. <laughs> yes, yes. In this case, I do feel that maybe you know, like the goat skin is, uh, yeah, connected with that Lupercalian festival. So I, I guess I will say, okay, but we shouldn't lose the overwhelming flow here, which is this is the switch point. We had before the whole story kind of being like a Garden of Eden um, meeting 
with temptation in like a modern autarch court. So it was like this meeting of the past and the present, you know, but then it's turned into kind of a prophecy of doom in this scene. So it went from here's the garden of Eden meeting. It's like a Connecticut Yankee and King, King Arthur's court, right? Mm -hmm. Like here's uh, Adam and Eve and they're in the autarch's court. And now suddenly we've got this prophecy of doom. So I think that we shouldn't, even though I think all that is valid, I think we should still try to keep the main flow so that people are not like, what, where are they going with this? Yeah. Cause this is really the big shift in the yes. play. Like yeah. this is, I mean, we were talking before, what's the third act or whatnot, but really this is the plates where the play takes a total turn and it's like play two. <laughs> it's like yes, a whole yes. second mm-hmm. thing that happens. And I think that point where you said there about like, yeah, in the first part, it's a mix, a little bit of past and future, a little bit, the, the temptation thing, but now we're getting to talk about the future and, yes. and that's something, I mean, we've had it before talking about the new, what's coming for Adam's new children or Adam or Meshia's new children. But yeah, here something is going different. And so that's why one thing, like when you said before about now we, we get the scene that's actually from earth of the new sun, that's all good. But I also want to keep a focus on like what happens here in the play. Like what does this new scene mean? in the play? And okay. So it's kind of cool because a prophet is basically giving us real prophecies. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, like he's going to tell us this is what's going to happen. And so we should listen to the prophet. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's someone take the role of prophet. I'll, I'll be prophet. I don't think I had one. So the prophet speaks. A hundred portents are abroad. At Incusus, a calf was dropped that had no head, but mouthed in its knees. A woman of known propriety has dreamed she is with child by a dog. Last night, a shower of stars fell hissing onto the southern ice, and prophets walk abroad in the land. You yourself are a prophet. The Autark himself has seen them. Which is funny. <laughs> in Cusus <clears throat> is not an out-of-the-world place, as far as I can tell. It's Latin for forged or fabricated. I, I haven't been able to come up with another village or town that has that name that could also be translated forged or fabricated. And I've not been able to find a reference in mythology or literature of people with mouths in their knees uh, stars falling on southern ice. That uh, could be a Hamlet's Mill mythology reference to the end of the age. But unless you guys can tie up these other things to something more specifically. Uh, okay. So, yeah, uh, the mouth in the knees. All right. So coming back to Fifth Head of Cerberus, you know, my my big idea, this is a minor, minor spoiler, but, you know, not really, uh, is that the abos are basically, their fi- the final stage of their lifestyle is like a sessile tree-like stage and that their legs are kind of planted in some scenes to renew their energy. Like if they're away from the soil for too long, they're going to die. Uh, funny legs there. So in a way, right, if you plant yourself, you could say that your mouth is in your knees. If you were like some kind of hybridized thing between, you know, a human being and a tree and how you got your nutrients there. So that's the only thing I'm going to say. But do I really think that that was what Wolf was thinking about? Maybe not. Right. Maybe not. Anything about the encusis? You guys got anything on that? Uh, not really. No, oh, okay. a forged or fabrication. I mean, you know, one of the things that the Herodules can do is uh, supposedly create worlds, right? And so they can like forge or fabricate these new these new worlds there. Uh, but I don't see how that would necessarily apply to anything here. Yeah, and the one thing I think that just struck me is just it is similar to Inca, and yes. we're in South America, and so mm-hmm. it could just and it's but it also then the form of it in Cusus sounds old Latin, so it could be just a play on. We do have Pater Incus in Long Sun, true, but, but true. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, 
just for now, I, I guess I'll accept that the prophet's just saying random weird portents followed by the joke and the prophets walk abroad. Yeah. And I do like the idea that it's like South American, but Latin and it yeah. could be just, just for the, the feel of it. Yeah. Yeah. So the autark who I assume is played by Talos and the prophet is played by Severian and if this is supposed to be the conciliator, I guess that's appropriate. So real quickly, I mean, we do see at the end of Earth that it's it's the real prophetess there who's, who's saying, hey, but earlier in Earth, I guess Severian does act kind of like a prophet in front of Typhon. So once again, it could be a mix of multiple scenes because in a little bit, we're going to see a scene that is both past and future uh, kind of mixed very freely. But they're obvious I, I, to me anyway, you know, that this is clearly a scene from the past and this is one that's going to be in the future. Um, but but they're. Uh, you know, kind of not necessarily in any kind of chronological order. And so it could be the conciliator in front of Typhon and it could be actually chapter 42 of Earth as well. You know. Yeah. OK, so the autark says my archivist, who is most learned in the history of this spot, once informed me that over 100 prophets have been slain here, stoned, burned, torn by beasts and drowned. Some have even been nailed like vermin to our doors. I would learn of you something of the coming of the new sun so long prophesied. How is it to come about? What does it mean? Speak, or we shall give the old archivist another mark for his tally and train the pale moonflower to climb that staff. So after they kill the prophet, they'll stick his staff in the garden. A moonflower blooms at night, so I guess that could represent the end of the new sun. But anyway, the prophet is supposed to preach the gospel of the new sun. Should we just keep going? Just, yeah, yeah, let's just yeah. get this out there. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah. <clears throat> so the prophet says, I despair of satisfying you, but I shall attempt it. Do you not know? I know, but I know you for a practical man concerned with the affairs of this universe alone, who seldom looks higher than the stars. For 30 years, I have prided myself on that. Um, 30 years strikes me as peculiarly specific. Uh, Agia suggested it's been 30,000 years since the time of the conciliator. The prophet says that the details of the new sun are not a matter of this peculiar universe. Hold on, hold on one second there, James. So I think really he's challenging a materialist conception of the universe of the senses. So he's saying, hey, you're an autark who has only looked right in front of you with your senses. You've only seen with your eyes. You see the stars that you look at, but there's more to it beyond this universe. Things of like more, you know, religious or theological or mm -hmm. even Gnostic concerns here. So I think he's challenging that materialism, these heavenly things. But I, I want to say the 30 years, how long is Severian gone from the time he disappears to the time years i thought he's gone for 40 but that's what that's referring to that's that's what that's referring to because it's when he comes back uh there it's been that time since valeria took over well i don't think we need to get metaphysical in this uh story because we have in this book uh multiple references to other universes and outside the universe if you say so <laughs> okay well i do mm. the, oh do you have anything to say Craig? nope <clears throat> okay go speak prophet Prophet continues, yet even you must know that cancer eats the heart of the old sun. At its center, matter falls in upon itself, as though there were there a pit without bottom whose top surrounds it. Uh, here we get a explanation of why the sun is dying. Uh, we've heard that it has something to do with a worm in his heart, and here it's called a cancer. 
at its center, matter falls in upon itself as though there were a pit without bottom whose top surrounded. This is a straightforward explanation of the black hole in the center of the sun and the event horizon. And I would just say that line about matter, just since, uh, yeah, I do agree with Mark that there's been at least the prophet is the one who at least kind of says, you know, you've never looked higher. And so then to come, that is a materialist kind of thing. And then to describe the black hole as sort of matter falling in on itself is kind of like matter needs something else to sustain it. So a black hole is kind of like a yes. good, a good Wolfian take on what materialism by itself would be like. And uh, it's not clear to a first time reader how the black hole was put there, but it will be made clear that it was the hierogrammats in the citadel of the autark, right? Regarding the the black hole in the sun, he says, the autark says, my astronomers have long told me so. Prophet, think on an apple rotten from the bud, fair still without until it collapses into foulness at last. Every man who finds himself still strong in the latter half of life has thought on that fruit. Uh, I think this is a joke about male virility in, in old age. I'm not so sure. I mean, it might be, but it's also about, you know, you look young and healthy on the outside, but inside you feel the effects of age and you know you're you're kind of a shadow of what you once were, even though you're still seemingly viral, you know, or, or healthy or, or capable. There's still something that's fading into dissolution there. It's a whole lot easier to see everybody's failings. <laughs> yeah. you get. That's for sure. So the prophet, so much then for the old sun, but what if it's cancer? What know we of that, save that it deprives earth of heat and light and at last of life? So then we, we hear sounds of struggle are heard off stage. There's a scream of pain and a crash as though a large vase has been knocked from its pedestal. Autark says, we will learn what that commotion is soon enough, prophet. Continue. Okay, uh, we'll wait with the audience on this one. Let's proceed uh, as the Autark commanded. We know it to be far more, for it is a discontinuity in our universe, a rent in its fabric bound by no law we know. From it, nothing comes. All enters in, not escapes. Yet from it, anything may appear, for it alone of all the things we know is no slave to its own nature. Yeah, he's describing the black hole as a rent in the fabric of the universe, right? Seems to me, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The point about being no slave to its own nature is interesting but i we can come back to that because i don't really know what to do with it but yep so then enter nod bleeding prodded by pikes held off stage autark says what is this miscreation prophet the very proof of those portents i spoke to you in future times so it has long been said the death of the old sun will destroy earth but from its grave will rise monsters a new people and the new sun Old earth will flower then as a butterfly from its dry husk, and the new earth shall be called Ushus. Yet all we know will be swept aside, this ancient house in which we stand, yourself, me. I think most readers uh, read the assertion of the coming of the new sun, uh, quote, sweep aside everything metaphorically. I think that's what they originally did before earth and the new sun. But it was to be read quite literally 
and physically. Right. And this tells us, you know, everything that's going to happen. I mean, you're going to get these cataclysmic monsters, these events, and then you, you get a new people to carry forward. And then that transformation like a butterfly from its dry husk. I mean, it's it really is powerful imagery, I think. And it's and it's beautiful. And when you read Earth of the New Sun, I think so many people get caught up in the flood. Everybody's dead. This is so terrible. But they don't look at, you know, the promise of that better tomorrow that is somehow still in there, um, you know, but I think so many different readers approach that a little bit differently, depending mm-hmm. on how they feel about whether the ends justifies the means and stuff like that. Yeah. And the butterfly here, of course, is sad kill imagery, right? Or if, or yes, whatever. but I, I mean, yeah, I mean, in some way it. or another, it's mm-hmm. there, it definitely connects to yeah. what he's saying. Yeah, sure. Although, um, how does Baldanders as Nod represent proof of the coming of the new sun? If it is, quote, you know, from the grave of the old earth will rise monsters, a new people. Well, Nod here is not a future monster. He's a, a present monster. Is so, is there some a sense that the Megatherians are going to rise with the coming of the new sun? No, it said the death of the old sun and you get its grave. So I think it's been dying for a while. You know, and while it's dying, these monsters and things will spring up because these things are going to come. Monsters, the new people, and the new sun. It doesn't say the new sun is going to bring monsters. So they could be from the, the death throes of the old planet. So he, he doesn't have to be a future monster, really. Yeah. And also, Nod himself says that, you know, whatever he is, is not important. It's more what his daughter and Meshia's son's offspring are going to be. Like, that's going right. to be the new thing. And so Nod himself could be... A monster, but uh, the suggestion here is that maybe there's something that will come from that's less monstrous. That's less monstrous. That that I don't know. And you, I mean, if you want to be super literal, you could say, okay, so wait, so are the Megatherians supposed to like mesh with humanity somewhere? And and I don't think that's quite it because remember that Nod also talked about himself as more the the physical side of Earth, and that humanity had something higher, but that what was going to happen was the new race that comes out is going to be like the green man where they somehow take the physical world and i mean to use good things with wolf they're going to evolve everything like it's not just some idea of like matter versus spirit there's actually development and evolution in all these things and in some ways the green man is a higher form of biological physical life um that actually is even I guess in many ways more sane and and less destructive because he feeds directly on light and instead of you know having to kill for his food and all that kind of stuff. So there may be something there that what Nod is representing rather than just being Baldanders or just be the Megatherians is something about that sort of that old earth as maybe a little too physical, like not developed, not evolved enough and needed so- to become something else. Quickly, uh, you know, one of the things I think is most interesting in Wolf is that sometimes you'd think he would support something pretty wholeheartedly. And then in his stories, it's way more complex. Like, for example, mm-hmm. in The Hero is Werewolf, that short story, you have basically transhumans who eat posthumans or whatever you want to call them, who no longer eat. And they have those psionic abilities, but they've also left behind something of what it means to be human yeah. in that. You know, there's a lot of compassion that's missing and they try to eliminate uh, faults and defects by destroying it instead of living with it and understanding it. You know, there's still yeah. compassion to be had there. So yeah. neither side is truly complete without the other. But it's really interesting whether the green man fills this. Is he really, really more perfect or are there new problems that come mm-hmm. along with that evolution? Yeah. Yep. And I think the way that 
long sun and short sun work out, yeah, there, there are just yeah. more problems. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's always more problems. So, uh, yeah, so Nod reflects on the coming of the new sun. I guess the only person we have left open to take the role of Nod is Mark. Here. I have no wisdom, yet I heard a wise man, soon to be a relative of marriage, say not long ago that all that is for the best. I, and that was Meshia who said the coming of the new son would be for the best. And Meshia, Nod repeats, will be a relative by marriage. And I think there is meaning here, more more meaning than merely that Severian joins with Thecla, a minion of Abi. I think it might have something to do with a connection between Thecla and Juturno, but I really cannot say anything specific. James, I feel like we've beaten this to death on a drum, that the new mankind being mingled with something else in its future. So I don't know why you're looking at only individuals. And this <laughs> wow. is about the future of humanity and it's mingling with, you know, something else that's kind of streamlined back into it. So, okay, okay, fine. <laughs> okay, so Nod here says... We are but dreams, and dreams possess no life by their own right. See, I am wounded, and he holds out his hand. When my wound heals, it will be gone. Should it with its bloody lips say it is sorry to heal? I'm only trying to explain what another said, but that is what I think he meant. Uh, this, I do agree, is all metaphor. You'll be happy to know. Uh, Earth is a wound on the universe and needs healing, so the wound must be destroyed so healthy new flesh can be there instead. Right? Okay, I think in essence you're right, but I think it's a, a richer metaphor even than that, even down to kind of the, like the Felix Culpa, right? When you're injured, there's a chance to heal, um, you know, so these, these bloody lips that are formed, it's going to close up. Should it utter that it's sorry to exist? So evil then, I think even this is an apologia for, for the existence of evil there, right? Should evil or something that's not seen as good apologize for the hurt that it causes? Or does it create other opportunities of healing along the way? And there's also the idea about this is one way to look at the flood in Earth as yeah. not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> you know, if like if you are part of a degenerate race, I mean, degenerate in all kinds of ways, like if, if you're part of a race that could be something better and you insist on maintaining yourself rather than evolving, are you really doing good? I mean, there's all kinds of questions that brings up right there. So, so, so we hear deep bells toll off stage. Yeah, and the bells pretend the coming of the new sun. But let's remember some of the places those tolling bells have come up in this book. When Severian meets Alton, when Severian meets Agalus. And when Severian shows the claw to the man-apes, when he's drowning in the guile, uh, you have Malrubius clanging his uh, spoon on the bulkhead. But yeah, bells, bells are always, always, always something about the new sun coming. There will mm -hmm. always be bells in the morning, just like Milton. <laughs> just like Milton had. Uh, but the autark here hears those bells as well. He says, um, what's that? You, prophet, go and see who's ordered that clamor and why. And the prophet leaves. And notice he tells uh, the prophet to go and see who ordered that clamor. He's, uh, he's sending the prophet at the conciliator, I say, to go and see what's going on with those bells. I mean, in chapter 42, it's it's going to be the girl from the hut that, that's very healed. I mean, so it's not really the conciliator he's sending when the scene actually comes to fruition but you know whatever okay so nod here <laughs> says i feel sure your bells have begun the welcome of the new sun 
It's what I came to do myself. It's our custom when an honored guest arrives to roar and beat our chests and pound the ground and the trunks of trees all about with gladness and lift the greatest rocks we can and send them down the gorges in honor of him. I will do that this morning if you will set me free, and I feel sure Earth herself will join me. The very mountains will leap into the sea when the new sun rises up today. Uh, yes, this is another reference to the flooding of Earth. But the Megatherians are the size of mountains, and most of them, at least, are below the sea already. But Baldanders, it seems, is trying to become a Megatherian, live forever by continuously growing, and he will leap into the sea at the end of his fight with Severian. Sure, but James, I just want to say that sometimes a mountain leaping into the sea is just a mountain leaping into the sea. I'm pretty sure that a mountain leaping into the sea is never just a mountain <laughs> leaping into the sea. I've, I, every time I've seen it, it's really meant something special. It's Godzilla. <laughs> so the autarch says, and where did you come from? Tell me and I'll release you. Why, from my own country, to the east of paradise. And where is that? Nod points to the east. I, I think we've already pointed out that Adam and Eve, when they were cast out of Eden, they settled east of Eden, which is the reference in the title to that Steinbeck novel. And Nod, the owner of the land that Cain fled, the place where Cain took his wife, is presumably also east of Eden. And the autarch uh, says, and where is paradise? In the same direction? Why, this is paradise. We're in paradise, or at least under it. Uh, this is interesting to me indeed. Uh, this scene, not the play itself, is taking place underground, I guess, in the house absolute, but maybe not. So Nod might be saying that Earth itself is Eden, but the house absolute is in the underworld. So the house absolute, uh, I don't know, could be hell, which is the beginning of paradise. Uh, in Jesus' parable uh, of the beggar Lazarus, Paradise is adjacent to hell. Actually, it's within talking distance. And also in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, hell is merely a tiny portion of dirt on the very edge of heaven. So I don't, I don't kind of, I don't like where you're going with that uh, too much, James. You know, where you're like, okay, they, they must be in hell right now. When he just said, this is paradise, right? Well, and alternatively, so the plague is taking place outside. Paradise could just refer to the heavens above them. Heaven is never far from us if we look Sure, out. but in Earth of the New Sun, there's a line where he's talking about the world, and he says, we could make this Earth a paradise if we tried to. If we were good to one another, if we behaved as we could, we could make the world like that. So I think the potential to make something a paradise is also ensconced in this verbiage. There's also a way of thinking of I mean, I like the way that he says this is paradise, or at least we're under it. And there is kind of a little bit of a Neoplatonic sense. Yes, yes, there, exactly. Which mm -hmm. is that anything has the potential to be better. <laughs> like yes. you, you can always, like there's always, that's what evolution is about, but that's also what sort of self-improvement is about. It's what morality is about, is that that you're never either as as a finite thing, you're never fully saved or fully damned. Like the the potential to be better is always there and there's never a sense like e even if you were quote unquote in hell the the story's not over and you can still work towards intellectually or morally or historically you can always work to make things better and so that's to me to say like oh this is paradise like this has very much all the potential of paradise is right here we're under it or we're, we're, we're to say like we're at least under it i think 
that's a little bit more kind of like, you know, or at least we have the potential for it. Yeah, the, the perfect things are, you know, they're in the sky, as it were, but then we just need to bring them down to earth to actually make this into a literal and paradise now. As, as I've said before, you know, I think that the, the philosophical uh, transformation that occurs, it starts with solipsistic Gnosticism, where he's like, the real world is Misty's of air, you know, it's just a mm -hmm. construct of the human mind. And eventually he gets to that everything descends from the hand of God. It's mm -hmm. real, you know, and yeah. it's all holy. Uh, so I think that, that that transformation from from a Gnostic kind of fallen world that's illusion to Neoplatonic perfection almost or perfectibility is is truly written into the, the book and its progression intentionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now we have enter the Generalissimo who marches to the throne and salutes. So if assuming we're correct that the Autarch is Talos and Baldanders is still not, then the Generalissimo is surely played by Severian. Uh, so uh, think about this. Why do we need a Generalissimo? If this is just a throwaway minion, why couldn't the role have been played by the second soldier? I, I just think that there are more peculiarities about this scene. Well, as I said a little bit earlier, I mean, when this comes up, he is going to be the Chiliarch of the Praetorians. Uh, you not know, a major the, role. Even no, in that not game. a major role, but he does actually, you know, act a little bit as, as kind of the head there. And he, he shows up in like two scenes or so when the older prophetess is talking about Baldanders coming to warn the Autark, just as she herself is. Um, you know, so he's, he's part of that witness to the warning. And the Praetorians also pick up uh, the Contessa and take her someplace safe in Earth of the New Sun as well. So he's present in those scenes. There's also just his mere presence is, is like, I mean, think about these characters we have on stage. You've got a leader of some sort who has already been established that he's kind of like a representative of what a god should be. You've got the prophet who, as James said, is kind of serving the role of the savior, at least giving the message of the conciliator. Um, you've got Nod, who's kind of like somebody who could be transformed into something else. Well, now you got a generalissimo who isn't just a soldier, but is actually a sort of large scale representation yeah. of yeah. like taking responsibility for war and for yes. damaging other people, connecting him to the autark, you know, it's bringing in it's, it, you know, if there are problems here with this earth that needs to get wiped clean, one problem maybe is that we just still have a generalissimo. Like, yeah, that's kind of exactly. my thing about like, yeah, I know we're going to get that character in earth, but like, okay, why do we even You're need right. a character like that? And I, I feel like just the reminder that this is a warlike society where you have some kind of, you know, military dude yes. who is apparently to the autark. Yeah, that it's, it's sort of another, it's the closest thing, at least in this scene, we get to, okay, Prophet just said that the old earth is horrible and awful. Well, Nod doesn't seem really bad right here. Um, the Autark maybe is a little selfish and he's kind of materialist. Okay, but why is that so bad? Well, we, we do have a generalissimo. Like we have, <laughs> we have violent or like people all around here. So <laughs> there is that. All right, Craig, you can be the journalist. Okay. So, Autark, we have searched all the land above this house absolute as you ordered. The Contessa Karina has been found and her injuries not being serious, escorted to her apartments. We've also found the Colossus you see before you, the bejeweled woman you described, and two merchants. What of the other two? The naked man and his wife. There's no trace of them. Repeat your search and this time look well. And he salutes and says, as my Autark wills. And I suppose uh, generally some exits. Takes off, yeah. Yeah. So here's something of a 
else. Uh, this is a non sequitur. The autarch did not in this play order anyone to search for the Contessa, and we've never seen her in peril. The reference to her injuries not being serious could be a joke about the way the Praetorians on the House Absolute Grounds helpfully find visitors, and perhaps the soldiers themselves injured her, but not seriously. Yeah, because, yeah, the last thing we saw the autarch do was run away. Right, right yeah. exactly. Yeah. And they've also been sent to find Meshia and Meshian, but that was unsuccessful. I don't know where Meshia has gone. Of course, the actor was right there, but I don't think we're going to see him for the rest of this play. Any theories about that? Well, you know, when the, when the new sun comes, I mean, we don't necessarily have to see him in action to know what he represents, right? That new race. And so in, in the scene in Earth of the New Sun, actually, he hasn't arrived until just about this scene. And they're like, oh, they've landed a man and woman on the gardens there, you know? So it's like when he disappears in the play is when he shows up in Earth of the New Sun um, at about that point. I'm just interested in the merchants. Like, why why two merchants? They're They're the... The, the hair jewels. Oh, really? yeah, they're, no. they're the demons in disguise. Yeah, I, know. I know, I know. I'm yeah. just kind of curious, like, why call them? Well, what, what are they selling? You know, what, what exactly <laughs> yeah, are these yeah, guys yeah. selling us? You know? Yep, yep. yep. Well, yeah. Uh, and then, but of course, uh, Jahi was captured. And in, in this scene in Earth of the New Sun, you're going to have a prophetess, right? Uh, who is that girl? You're going to have Valeria as the autarch. You're going to have Baldanders as Nod, who's been bloodied and poked by the pikes there mm-hmm. as he's brought before the autarch. And then you're going to have the character who represents Jahi coming in. She's Juturna. She's Juturna. I've told you this over and over and over. <laughs> she's Juturna. So that's going to happen in Earth of the New Sun. Uh Baldanders is not bloodied when he's yes he is yes he is yes he is Earth is son forty two he he is parting his lank hair with bloody hands in Earth the New Sun chapter forty two he's bloody but he's okay all right but he's not been bloodied he's been bloodied up by these guys he's been roughed up okay Uh, so the autarch says and have the jeweled woman sent to me. And Nod begins to walk off stage, but is stopped by Pikes, and the Generalissimo draws his pistol. Am I not free to leave? By no means. I told you where my country lies, just east of here. More than your country lies, I know that area well. So the Generalissimo disputes Nod's claim to the location existence of the land of Nod. And the Artarch, Fatigue, says, he has told the truth as he knows it. Perhaps the only truth there is. <laughs> Perhaps uh, it seems fishy, but it is a nice summary of the meaning of an unreliable narrator. And of Wolf's, you get a moment there of Wolf's, everything comes from a perspective and you have to know mm-hmm. it. But New Sun of all this stuff is very much about, yeah, you have a perspective, but the truth is breaking in in different ways. So the fact that the autarch is the one who would say, yeah, perspective, truth, that's all there really is. This autarch who only looks at the world, that would be his position yeah and, yeah, and the trick of new sun is all about well how do you get outside of that perspective yeah so. and then nod says then i'm free to go i think that he whom you came to welcome will arrive whether you are free or not i gather this means the new sun right yep i think so yet there is a chance and such creatures such as you cannot be allowed to roam abroad in any case no you are not free nor ever again will be so Nod is imprisoned. Baldanders never is. Uh, Abia never is. I, I propose that this is the being 
quote, under the mountain that rattled its chains. Oh, James, I'm telling you, man, this is the scene where Bald Anders is brought before Valeria there. And then what's coming up after this is actually a call, a call backwards in time from that to when Severian and Bald Anders will fight uh, at, at in uh, Sword of the Lictor. So it's like this is a more future scene and then the play will go backwards a little bit, but it's still a future scene in comparison to, to where the play is located. Um, so this is mixing a couple scenes, but not as always bald anders in these cases. So I, I'm more interested in the idea of not being free and bald anders in a sense at the end yes. of the new son, he is not, even though he's not imprisoned, nobody's really free at that point. Everybody's subject to the flood. Everybody's subject to this kind of weird forced evolution. I guess that's happening. Yeah. Um, well, bald isn't a threat though, is he? You can fall. Oh, no, at the, at the end fine. of, well, at the I end of the news dies, I assume he and he dies, Jahi dies. I mean, by the end of it, it's the flood kind of makes whatever plans the Megatherians had null and void. Mm-hmm. It makes Baldanders not really give him a place. So even though we don't actually see him die, the fact that there's basically no earth for him to live on. I mean, I think it kind of is. Uh, he it, doesn't care. And, but no, I have, but actually have a theory, but I it can't bring it up till the. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't bring stuff. it up. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No new theories. Hold on. I will bring it up. Yeah, yeah. but so, um, that's as much as I'll do. Okay, so you know, in that chapter though, they both, Jaterna and Baldanders, both make great lens to say, "We've come to warn you. We've come to to help you, to save you. Even Abaya wants what's best for you. He just he just thinks that what's best for you is different than what you think is best for you, right? And so you know, explicitly in that chapter, Baldanders is set up as somebody who's not an enemy of the New Sun, and he said. He destroyed the claw of the conciliator because he thought it was a crutch that would keep him from, you know, uh, realizing his potential, that it was just something in the way of the truth. Um, but he said he didn't fully understand. But they're, they're allies in a way by that by that chapter, which is this scene that we're getting here. Yeah. And it just seems like that saying that you're not free, I think it's another one of those weird speaking not of two sides of his mouth at once. Like it's true that Nod at this point is a prisoner of this worldly autark who he's not going to let him go back to his homeland but there's also a sense in which he's no longer free because Nod has basically committed his legacy to whatever messia is going to become right and so it's it's true in a couple ways um it's still it's it's weird it's this one is where like i feel and, like i can get some sort of larger meaning out of it but and, it, it and bald anders is, is also a victim of what he's done to himself to make himself yeah, so true. large and to keep yeah. growing like he's he's not free to walk around on land anymore you know he's changed as a result of that and even his memory and everything has, yeah. has changed yeah so so Nod rushes from the stage, pursued by the generalissimo shots screams and crashes the figures around the autark fade in the midst of the uproar the bells toll again Nod re-enters with a laser burn across one cheek. The Autark strikes him with a scepter. Each blow produces an explosion and a burst of sparks. Nod seizes the Autark and is about to dash him to the stage when two demons, disguised as merchants, enter, throw him down, and restore the Autark to his throne. Uh, by the way, Talos has included some nice stage effects with the explosion yeah, and sparks there. Yeah. yeah, and this is pretty much a call to the scene in Sword of the Lictor where Bald Anders and Severian fight, you know? Uh, there's a lot, except there's no Severian in here, right? I mean, it doesn't, no, it doesn't matter, but he will be the Autark someday. So as I said, this is like a prognostication where Severian fades into the Autark's role for this one thing when they're fighting there because he's going to be the Autark, even though he's not in Sword of the Lictor. So once again, there's that mutability of character where we had a few far future scene and then it morphs into what's going to be a near future scene with 
instead of Valeria, it's Severian in the role of the Autark, or to be the Autark. And know, it's that, to, and it's that sort of whole thing that Wolf is so good at with his dreams, right? Of just yeah, it's this dream logic of yep. shifting stuff. Yep. Yeah, just frustrating as hell, but. Cool. And also in that fight, you know who's there at the castle are the Herodules, right? Yeah. They're they're, they're yeah, there. They so. don't they don't they don't save uh, Severian. No, but their machinations there. kind of actually cause the conflict a little bit. Well, then that's the opposite of the demons. Hey, who can say? <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, and the, the two demons, as I said, prevent the Autark from being dashed to death by Nod. The demons overpower Nod and put the Autark on his throne. They. Once again, they put him on his throne. They kneel to Severian when he shows up in front of Baldanders and it pisses him off. So this is exactly that scene. I think beginning here, it becomes clear that this scene, for a lot of reasons, is the ancient defeat of Abaya and Erebus when the Asians made it nearly to the Citadel. I don't think that's clear, James. I, I, th- I think it's clear. It's getting clearer. So these demons... Of course, we agree, are the Herodules, who not only keep the Autark in power with their other world technology and weapons, but also, I think, put Nod in his place. So I think the defeat of the ogre and the tale of the student's son occurred around this point. So, James, this reminds me of something that Thomas Beckett was supposed to have said. The last temptation is the greatest treason. Do the right thing for the wrong reason. And so that's kind of how I feel about your conclusion. It's right, but not necessarily for the right reason. I was going to say, you are, you are starting to circle circle towards each other there a little bit. But, yeah, yeah. 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 But, I well, mean, let's be, I, hey, Talus is the one who says, hey, our experience here has ripples back in time and causes people to think about it in terms of Frankenstein and whatnot. I mean, why could that also not be sort of how Abaya and Erebus worked out. Sure, but it's really about the fight between Severian and Baldanders, and (laughs) it is in the book. Well, I mean, but but you've just moved from Earth of the New Sun suddenly to to Sword of the Lictor. And I'm telling you that this moves across times like that. Like, some scenes are clearly about, like, okay, this is, you know, Aegea and um, Jalenta arguing with each other. And, you know, I mean, if you want to be too picky about it, I mean, the bells told at the beginning of the last scene when we said we moved from when we move from a story about sort of a general what's going to come in the future to a scene that Mark says is in the real future, bells toll, we move there. Now the bells toll here again. Maybe the bells are about sort of shifting perspectives or times or something like that. Otherwise, there's no real reason why these bells would toll. Like in the like the bell tolls here in the midst of the uproar, the bells toll again. Well, I mean, ask not for whom the bell tolls; it tolls for Earth. Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, like yeah, that's, yeah. That's, I mean, that's what it's really. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm just getting multiple meanings. We bell. definitely should ask who for whom the bells toll, because I I think the tolling bells and the interpretation and the the meaning for what it meant to Wolf for these bells tolling is real, and when they toll is really interesting to me, and I don't have a grasp on it because they toll at kind of strange places. Fair enough. So the Autark says, thank you. You will be richly rewarded. I had given up hope of being rescued by my guards. And I see I thought rightly. May I ask who you are? And that's a good question. Uh, Are these uh, actors Dorcas and Jolenta? I assume they are. Uh, And we're going to learn that the guards were not merely cowering. Uh, Nod killed them before attacking the Autark. So I'll be first demon. I'll be second demon. First demon says, your guards are dead. That giant has smashed their skulls against your walls and broken their spines upon his knees. 
second demon says, We're two traitors merely. Your soldiers took us up. Would that the dead soldiers were traitors, and in their places I had such soldiers as you, and yet you are in appearance so slight, I would think you incapable of even ordinary strength. First demon bows and says, Our strength is inspired by the master we serve. Uh, who is their master? Uh, the new son, I guess. Okay, so second demon, you'll wonder why we, two commonplace traders and slaves, should have been found wandering your grounds by night. The fact is that we came to warn you. Our travels but lately took us to the northern jungles, and there in a temple older than man, a shrine overgrown with rank vegetation until it seemed hardly more than a leafy mound. We spoke to an ancient shaman who foretold great peril to your realm. Uh, is this the green man? Where's the temple? Is the village in the anti-New Sun Wizards? Uh, the ancient shaman, Apu Punchao, the green man, heard from Apu Punchao that the Commonwealth was a threat from an attack of the Asians? No, no, James, all right, the new sun is coming. Like, it's going to wipe away all this stuff. I mean, it's not necessarily about that temporal struggle there that they're going through. I mean, it's the threat to humanity itself. Um, now, we do get, though, at the end of Citadel of the Autark, right? Isn't that kind of in the jungle there where they, where they crash? Uh, yeah. And that's where he kind of ascends to become the Autark. Uh, so that's where the Autark actually is going to die in in the in the fields up up uh, up there in the northern jungles. That's where he's going to meet his fate, and Severian will become the Autark. And so, I mean, it does tie in a little bit to actual scenes, which makes me feel like we've reversed roles a little bit. Where you know we're looking for I don't know actual actual scenes from the book that this corresponds to. It could still be some Apu Punchao connection. Yeah, it could. Here. It I could. Mean, it could. That. There is still sort of this recognition that, hey, there's this guy who kind of presages a lot of the stuff that's yeah. going to be happening. Yeah. Um, the the weird thing is just that here they're the higher duels like that, but they say they learned it from a guy. But I, I don't know. The actual oh. higher duels are weird anyway because they're like they're heroes, but they're slaves. And, and yeah, what is which is the word term that means holy slave? Is it yeah. is it higher jewel? Okay, and here yeah. they say we're traders and slaves, mm -hmm. so yep. it kind of yep. directly links them. Yeah. Yep. So the first demon says, with that intelligence, we hastened here to give you the alarm before it should be too late, arriving at the very wince of time. What must I do? Second demon says, this world that you and we treasure has now been driven around the sun so often that the warp and woof of its space grow threadbare and fall as dust and feeble lint from the loom of time. The continents themselves are as old as rattled women, long since stripped of beauty and fertility. The new sun comes. I know. And he will send them crashing into the sea like foundered ships. Uh, again, it's obvious what the intent of this conversation is now with uh, Earth, the new sun under our belt. And I'm sure most people took it figuratively at first. And that if they read the play carefully rather than skimming at this point, which, which I confess I did. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's it's pretty clear, you know, I've argued this so many times that it's it's very clear that Wolf had this flood in mind. The coming of the new sun will bring, hey, boom, everything's going to crash into the sea. It's mentioned multiple times in this play. So if you realize this is a prophecy, right, then, you know, it's it's pretty clearly set. But how to get there from what we had without Earth of the New Sun being published? Um, nowadays, I feel like I would pick up on it. Obviously, when I read it the first time when I was a little kid, I certainly didn't. And I was surprised by that ending. And I think everyone who's honest with them would say that they would be unless they're super familiar with Wolf and his techniques and the foreshadowing and they put a lot of stock in that imagery. So the second the second demon here says, and from the sea lift new 
glittering with gold, silver, iron, and copper, with diamonds, rubies, and turquoises, lands wallowing in the soil of a million millennia, so long ago washed down to the sea. Now, this is interesting. The continents themselves are used up of resources, but on the seafloor, there are more, and that will be the continents of the new earth. First demon, to people these lands a new race is prepared. The humankind you know will be first shouldered will be shouldered aside even as the grass that has prospered on the plains so long yields to the plow and so gives way to wheat. Ah, the new race, the, the green men and beyond. So what the first demon said there is basically, hey, humankind is going to be cast aside like the grass. It's cut down and wheat is going to come up there. It's not just grass. It's going to be nursing wheat. It's better, right? And so the second demon here reveals the ambitions of Jahi, right? When he says, but what if the seed were burned? What then? The tall man and the slight woman you met not long ago were such seed. Once it was hoped that it might be poisoned in the field, but she who was dispatched to accomplish it has lost sight of the seed now among the dead grass and broken clods, and for a few slights of hand has been handed over to your inquisitor for strict examination. Yet the seed might be burned still. So here he he's saying that someone was sent to poison that wheat before it ever comes to fruition, right? Jahi, if she, yeah. if she is, if she insinuates herself in there into the race, it will not be wheat. It'll be something else like chaff or who knows exactly what it's going to be. But, but he's like, what if we burn everything there? Right. And so the question is, whose side is the demon on? Does he want to burn that seed or not? Now the high rituals clearly don't, they want humanity to, to ascend there. Um, so have they shifted again into like more of, you know, like Idis's position or the sailors on earth it's really interesting to think about the point of view of these demons here and whether what do they what do these demons in the play want is there some suggestion in there that the megatherians were once working for the asadis basically or that that they're sort of like fallen angels in a certain sense uh, the, like the they, only thing could probably be that the similarities between zad keel and his ability to kind of pinch off little copies of yeah. himself and what some people say is something like a megatherian and, yeah. and skilla and and mother on you know in a later book in book yeah. of the short sun mm-hmm. and and whether she can actually do something similar or not with sirak you know yeah. so yeah yeah, and so now here, um, Jahi's task is exactly the opposite of the woman in Jonas's story of the woman with the five beans. And that's a mystery that Mantis thinks he solved. I don't know, maybe. I, I feel like we're supposed to more specifically identify that woman. The the only woman in this story whose origins are suspiciously obscure to me, uh, not to everyone I admit, is Agia. Oh, you, mean, this- you mean the story of the woman with the five beans or... Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. I, I, I feel like bit. that woman, okay. we're supposed to find her. We're supposed to recognize her somewhere. And all this feels in this in this little description by the second demon, it feels very specific to me. But now I'm, I'm forced to explain Jahi again and maybe Ajia. You turn but off. the fact that Jahi has been handed over to the Inquisitor, to the Inquisitor, uh, implies Thecla or Thea. Uh, so let's take this in pieces. Who dispatched Jahi, the queen of hell? Or Jaterna, if you prefer. Yeah, I mean, Abaya and and, and, and everybody there. Well, like, she, does, she does nothing but save Severian, even after he's brought the new son. She but what is go it? Back. She's an undying. She she's a bride of Abaya. And, no. But well, she doesn't remember saving him when the scene comes up in Earth of the New Sun. Yeah, but when he tells her, she says, oh, well, now that you've told me, yes, I definitely will go back and save you. Now she, right? What if she never saved him? 
I think Severian asked that question himself at the end of uh, Citadel of the Autarch. Like, no, what if what if she didn't actually save him in his life and he's just an Eidolon that was resurrected from the child that died there? And he, instead she threw him down, threw him down to the bottom. And then, you know, I, I don't think that's textual, but isn't he confused about up and down in that scene too? He is, he is very good. I mean, that is, that is we kind of thought about that yeah. when we were looking at that uh, event as well. And then it would be, but I mean, she claims to have saved him, I think, in Claw the Concilia, or later on when she shows up at a certain scene, she does say that she saved him. Otherwise, if she denied it in Earth, I'd be like, maybe she didn't throw him up, you know? <laughs> maybe she threw him down to the bottom, and then he's just in an Eidolon all along. But I don't know that anything except the skull underground points to that and the, the statement that she threw me down. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, I don't see anything in Juturna's story that puts her at trying to just trying to trying to poison severity. I mean, maybe, maybe if he had taken her up on the offer and gone to the bottom of the yes. sea, things might've gone but differently. Look at what, look at what the second demon says. She who was dispatched to accomplish it has lost sight of the seed among the dead grass and broken clods. So she kind of like lost track of her goal too. Like, you know, she's, she's kind of foundering there. Like she knows who Meshia is, right. But maybe she's become actually sympathetic to him a little bit and actually desires, you know, what's, what's best for him as well. I mean, that's kind of speculation there, but I think that it's more than just, she can't find him. It's like, she's lost sight of the kind of goal there among the dead grass and broken clods, humanity, right? That the dead grass is humanity. So she's become maybe more human in her perceptions. So the, the Autark says, the thought you suggest has already passed through my own mind. Of course. So the Autark ostensibly is taking their idea and assuming it is own. And the demons are happy to agree, but it could also imply their knowledge of the future. So the Autark says, but would the death of those two truly halt the coming of the new sun? Even if, even if Jahi were successful in poisoning them them poisoning the seed. Would that prevent the coming of the new sun? No, but would you wish it? The new lands shall be yours. So killing Meshia and Meshian would not stop the new sun from coming, but so who the heck are they and why do they matter? I, I, I mean, come on, James, they're the sailors that are dropped off. I'm not getting on board that. Theater. You can you can just sit there and <laughs> wave they, at me from the boat. Are. I know that come I'm on. not going to get on that boat. Um, so you can read the end there. So as the two demons vanish, Nod sits up. The cities and hills fade, and the screens show the image of the Autark multiplied many times. And okay. All right. Okay. Stand back. Stand back. I'm vibrating because <laughs> at last, gentlemen, there's something going on in this stupid play that I understand clearly. Okay. And remember, this is the part of the play that is particularly important to the Herodules in the audience because they have not experienced this even yet. This is news to them about what is going to happen to them, what has already happened on Earth. And I've been wondering about the purpose of this play and what it's for. And this part, for sure, is for them. Hold on, hold on one second, James. Don't they go backwards in time? Yes, exactly. Because this is not in the future, Mark. This it, it is the future. Utterly, chapter 42. Settle down, settle, down, settle down, settle down. I'm going to try <sighs> okay. and explain this to you. The Autark here is maybe Typhon, maybe Emar, or a combination of both of them. The, the conciliator comes and he predicts the new sun. Remember, at this point, 
There is no Earth of the New Sun. When Wolf wrote this, I don't think he's really even agreed conceptually until after uh, 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 Claude the Conciliator has, is on its way to printing. So none of the, the uh, plans for Earth of the New Sun are, you know, even a germ in Wolf's eyes. This is for first-time readers who have only this book. The conciliator comes, the conciliator comes, and he predicts the new sun. So if this is Typhon, well, you know, the, the word autark is just a convention since, you know, he's likely called something else. If it's Emar, then he encounters the conciliator in the Madison Tower. Certainly the way the autark talks, he, he sounds more like Typhon. The conciliator exits. So everything at that point hap that happens is after conciliator Severian leaves the scene and goes to the future as he did in Earth of the New Sun. Is the autark Typhon at this point or Emar? It doesn't matter, but I like the story that the original part was Typhon. So I'm going to tell it that way. Enter the Megatherians as Nod. I've suggested that maybe this play is not about our past, but that of a previous universe iteration. The existence of the conciliator, in my opinion, means that at least this partition of the play, that cannot be true. It has to be this universe. So with the coming of the conciliator, the Megatherians start getting involved in continental politics. And this runs them at odds with the Autark. The details of how they got at odds is not clear to me, but the reason, well, the Megatherians are interested in the one who will bring the new sun. That's clear from what Baldander says. The Autark, I'm going to say it was Typhon who dealt falsely with the Megatherians in some way. The play suggests that the Megatherian was captured, which brings me to mind again of that thing north of the wall of Nessus. I like it that it was Typhon who chained it there because it explains why there's no knowledge of it in Severian's memory or of the house absolute records. Severian can only guess at what it was. So it was Typhon who defeated Erebus and chained him there. And I'm lured by various elements in the tale of the student in the sun to believe that Severian was involved. It seems improbable in the extreme that Severian could be the generalissimo. Uh, whether the autark is Typhon or Emar, he'd be recognized as the conciliator. But there is a revolution that Typhon chooses to sleep off because, you know, he can't flee the planet. And that revolution clearly brings Emar to power. And the mountain chain north of Nessus contrives with Abaya to wreak vengeance on the rulers of the Commonwealth and is very nearly successful. We learn that the invaders got nearly to the Citadel. But just at the last moment, when the armies of the Commonwealth are almost completely defeated, just before the Megatherians are victorious, Two demons arrive, Famulius and Barbatus, the Hierodules. They bring their space-age weapons and their extra-universal logistics and defeat the armies of the Ischians. And that's why the Wall of Nessus was built so far in the north. It's located just south of that Megatherian chain there. And the Hierodules say, we came to warn you. Our travels but lately took us to the northern jungles and there in a temple, Older than man, a shrine overgrown with rank vegetation until it seemed hardly more than a leafy mound, we spoke to an ancient shaman who foretold great peril to your realm. And that ancient shaman is Talus. And the shrine overgrown with rank vegetation until it hardly seemed more than a leafy mound, that is House Absolute Boom. Now, 
the play gets a little more vague for me because I don't understand Meshi or Meshiana or Jai. But the Harajulis tell Imar something along the lines of, but what if the seed were burned? What then? The tall man, the slight woman you met not long ago are such a seed. Once it was hoped that it might be poisoned in the field, but blah, 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 blah. You guys got it. There is a woman a woman that Jahi represents, and there is a tall man and a slight woman, and admittedly that sounds a lot like Severian and his grandmother Dorcas, and now I'm starting to understand the theories that Dorcas was assassinated by shadowy forces. But as always, the villainous seeking to stop the new son, the villainous who definitely calls to mind that woman in Jonas's story with the seeds, that villainous who, she just looks thematically a lot like Agia, but I don't get Agia, so I don't get that woman, but let's leave that out because we have more story that I do understand. The Harajuls tell the Autark that if he agrees to take the test, he will survive the coming of the new son. He'll be Autark of the new world, as they, the new lands shall be yours because he will live on in Severian. Imar agrees. He makes the cruel choice for the Commonwealth. May never the new son see what we do here. Ships sweep us over with flames till all is here. So this is the blocking of the roads, the prevention of the Commonwealth's progress. And finally, as the two demons vanish, Nod sits up, the cities and hills fade, and the screens show the image of the Autark multiplied many times. This is the passage of time, Autark after Autark. Just as I understand everything now about the shadow of the torturer, except everything connected to Agia. I understand this play generally at this point, except everything connected to Jahi. Well, James, let me just say, we'll probably have to agree to disagree about some of this stuff. I do think that you have some good points there, like at the end there where, okay, yes, right. Uh, the new land will be yours. If, if Meshi and Meshian are assassinated or poisoned, then the old rule will continue, right? But they're not going to be poisoned. This is the, the new world that's been prepared for them. Now, the cities and hills fade and the autarch is multiplied many times. I agree with you, right? That is kind of a, a, the, the, the sense that the autarch is legion, that he has all of those personalities and that he's going to survive somehow in that. But, what about um, the shaman and the, uh, and the, the leafy mound? You know who gives prophecies is the green man, but I really don't necessarily think that the leafy mound is the house absolute. I think that might be something else. Do we even have a temple in the jungle, don't we, when they go up north in Citadel? Yeah, the, think about it. The Harajuls are just coming from here. They're heading off to the past. So they have been foretold by a prophet. Okay, but I still don't think that this play has anything to do with Typhon or Amir, I think that it, it pretty explicitly is about Severian and the coming of the new sun and the future races there. And I just, I just, I just, I resist any attempt to look too far backwards. And I don't even think that there's a Megatherian chained in that thing. I still think it's the walking tower that shows up in Citadel the Autark because of the callbacks there and the discussion between Severian and Jonas about how, like, how do you fight something so big? You know, what is the wall for? And he's like, well, it's the defenses of the Autark, really. And you know, and I just I just feel like the, the presence of that tower with chains is more of a subversion of what we expect, where we all expect like a Balrog down there in in, in chained in the, in the in the you know midst of that. I think life. that's just what I suggested. <laughs> yeah, some of that I got to admit I think you've out Borsky Borsky a couple of times. So uh, <laughs> you have, you have created Borsky illusions. Borsky never said anything literal. I have I have mapped 
the literal history of the known time of Emar oh to well, this part of the plague by creating scenes. Right. Wholesale. Uh, wholesale. I mean, like you say, like an allusion to something that is never like the, the higher duels coming back and fighting the creatures. Well, we know like, that we know that we know that they, they were almost defeated and they, and the megatherium and the Skians almost got to the Citadel walls. They were almost defeated. I mean, it's, it, since yeah, we but don't you know presented exactly it as a is. sort of step-by-step war that well, that I yes, don't, ex- <laughs> yeah, that's like where Borsky will say, like, "There's an analogy, so there must be a character that Wolf just never named or mentioned. It must but, be there, just like you got scenes that must be. I, I've left I'm not, off I mean, I'm talking about scenes, not characters, like whole Look, I, whole sort all, of wars. And, and, and then when came in association with Borsky at this time, it's not that I haven't been been compared to Borsky in the past, but. In this case, I'm not drawing metaphysical uh, analogies from 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 symbols. I'm I'm saying this is a story that we know. Yeah, but it's I would know. I would say this, but it's that's a lot of work to get to something that would just flesh out a little bit more of part of the backstories, but that don't really tell us anything super useful about the whole arc of the story like i mean the only reason the play is really interesting to me is because in the context of the story you don't have any sense of like what's actually at stake like there's this is the one place where all those sort of hints and things before tell you what's at stake which is the future of humanity and the fate of the earth otherwise there's no other place that you really know what the sun is about if all of that work was just to kind of give us a little bit more of Typhon's backstory, it, that's weird. Remember when this play is over, Severus going to going to mention that he could hear the Herodules sitting around talking about the implications of the play. They're 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 not talking to them. This is not something they they themselves have experienced. They're trying to work this out the way we are. Yeah, they have though. This is the future, James. James, they, they have know, this is the future. Yeah, they know the outcome this that humanity past. is working this is towards. The future. So. so, like, you're wrong. Like, you, I think, I think, from my perspective, right? It's not the past that this play is really elucidating. It's the future. It's a prophecy, and the Herigels have lived a prophecy. They know it, and they're like, "Yeah, oh, that's right." You know, I mean, that's. I, I think that that's the conclusion that I would I would come to in this case. Now, another thing though is um, that. Typhon works best as a really allegorical Satan figure who shows up for like one scene and is powerful and intimidating. And, you know, his backstory, the more you know about him, I mean, even though he's fleshed out in Book of the Long Sun a little bit, the less mystical and powerful he becomes. He's perfect in his role as in New Sun for what he is. Like he's this satanic threat who tempts Severian to give, you know, bow before me and you'll have this. I mean, that temptation in the desert there. And if you if you humanize that character too much in in the original arc, you know, from from this to to Citadel, I I don't know what purpose it serves there. I mean, we do see that he encountered the conciliator and that makes sense as like a foil to the conciliator. Oh, you're my old foe. You know, that makes sense. But but this stuff, I I don't understand what why we would need that. Well, the Herodules, the Herodules need it. Okay. <laughs> That's, because they're going there. They're on their way to the okay. past. Okay. But they've been to the future. I see. I think this is about the future where they've been. So they already know. This. All right. Look, look, look. Okay. I okay. can't help someone who doesn't want any One, help. Yeah. Okay, James. Fair <laughs> enough. 
we should have votes, you know, like how many, how many of you buy what Mark said? You know, we need, we need those kind yeah, of polls. Yeah, yeah, Mark, why don't we go to the earth list and take a vote on all that? Well, okay, I'm going to keep that to myself. <laughs> My opinion about uh, the cornerstone, you know, and all that stuff. The statue got me high. The statue got You want to yes. try it? Sure. Three, two, one. Oh, of man. Of course. Oh, sorry. <laughs> try it one more time. Okay. Three, two, one. Of course. Of course. Oh, man. We suck. <laughs> uh, you guys could have just said it separately. And then well, you know, I can always. Them together. I yeah. can always. I can still edit those two together. It'll be all That's true. That's okay. True. Okay. So would that suggest then that the Kiman is aligned with the Megatherians? They said they know. It's hard to say. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I don't necessarily yeah. think that magic is at all. Enough. I mean, she does work for the Megatherians, right? Uh, the the uh, Hildegard's going to show up and get her to help him. We need to do some more research on that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some yeah. time before the end of the chapter. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel bad because she's going to show up in a couple chapters. But yeah, the command still confuses me. For a few I think, well, I, my sense of the, of the command, and we still have time to worry about that, but my sense of, of them is that they're, they're kind of free agents. How they fit into the whole scheme, you know, is, is not really clear, but they have unique powers not held certainly by the Megatherians because they have to, their, their agents have to go to them for help. Um, and maybe not even the heroes. They say they pay rent. That's what they do. So that reminds me too of 
the person shoot was it on reddit or was it you you were saying gotten an argument are there are there any actual aliens aliens did we forget about the command i didn't forget i just don't know enough about them to say one way or the other she's pretty alien though when you see like the actual description of her Mm -hmm. like that lizard like thing with all the, the eyes and stuff and uh you know, that scene where she brings Apple Punch-Chow forward, that could potentially have destroyed Severian. You know, like, is, is that a malicious kind of thing or is she working with him to make him realize what he is? I think I need to look at her motivations yeah. a little bit. Well, more. the final chapter of Citadel, um, Severian says that, the, kind of suggests that the um, witches were caught off guard. They didn't, they didn't know what they were dealing with until that moment. Okay, hey, hang on. I'm going to pause for just a moment on this. This is, has to do with work. I'll, I'll be back in about 10 minutes here. Hold on. Should we hit stop? Yeah, let's hit stop, and then we'll we'll just... Okay. That was hit not it. my intent at all. It gives me some sort of audible signal when you do that, though. Beep, or something like that. So. Yeah, I know. It's weird that it doesn't. Is this going to be like one of those beam-me-up Scotty things where it never was actually said? Well, that would be... That would be very good. <laughs> <laughs> Don't... Do not speak of such thing. So as far as the rest of the play, then we've got everything else that happens is really the Inquisitor's scene, right? Does Is is the rest of it all take place in the Inquisitor's uh, office? Yeah, it takes place inside the Inquisitor. Right. With the Inquisitor. So we really get one final scene um, in yeah. the end. It's about, I, one, it's about nine pages, though. Yeah, it's, um, it's the longest single sort of scene or act of the whole thing, but... Um, but I think but, we have we have enough now for an episode, right? With oh the, yeah, oh yeah. With yeah. this and the other bit, yeah, definitely. So, um, but I think if we could maybe try and wrap do it that up. whole last thing, yeah, in one yeah, episode, let's wrap that'd it be up. Good. Yes. And that'd be five. Um, and then just kind of what we could do at the end is, I think, would be useful and and maybe not to do yet another episode that just summarizes everything. But I think it might be nice to. To Mark, if you wouldn't mind, if you could come up with yeah, just a sure. good overall wrap up of sure. your take on the play, yep. and then James can have one. I mean, you, James has yep. one here that he's got, but if we could sort of have just as a fun, as a nice sort of takeaway for everyone who sat yeah. through us going through it, it'd be nice to say, like, all right, in five minutes, here's here's one way yeah. to take yeah. what the play is, and I think that'd be really mm-hmm. cool and useful. All one right. more, one more, <laughs> and then I'll right. okay. So, Craig, do me a favor, or or James, or whoever edits this. Take out some of the stuff that seems irrelevant or rambling. <laughs> that Mark's a real snake asshole. 